pretty comfortable having watched the greatest media redemption arc of all time. It's V'ger, please, which will, for a few episodes here, not be a heinous trip or hateful voyage, but a, a pleasant journey at, at top speeds across subspace. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. Can you believe that we're about to start, start talking about a, a season of Star Trek Picard, Peter? No, and I mean, the number one reason to go back to this well, everybody should have just got a good 15 seconds worth, and that would be a legitimate use to reuse our inner light cover, thoughtfully provided by Ian and Sarah. I'm truly their best work, and, and that's at even accounting for the banger they did for our Enterprise episodes. Fucking squandered on season one of Picard, which we reviewed. We stopped reviewing Voyager, what? Two years ago? Yeah, if you have not, if you're joining this podcast already in progress and you're like, what the fuck is this inside baseball shit these two jabronis are talking about? Let me recap. Peter and I, from the very beginning of doing this show back in 2018, got pretty hype about the idea of reviewing Picard when it was announced, I think, at the beginning of 2019. Okay, so we haven't been doing the show that long when the idea of Picard came into being and we stopped reviewing Voyager near the end of season four. I want to say right before demon. Cause I remember demon was our first episode back to Voyager so that we could review Picard on a weekly basis and kind of stay current on it. We were so hyped for it. Never before have you and I been quite so mean and, in my opinion, quite so funny. As deservedly as, so. Deservedly so. Like, true we facts. Were, we were offended at the existence of Picard season one and the nosedive in quality that it took from the very start to the point where we did not continue. We gave up halfway through the season because we were driving our own fans away with how angry we were. And also it wasn't we fun. It wasn't fun. We weren't enjoying it. We like it to do this been for funny. Fun. I think I think it was funny. I think some other people call it funny. Other obviously, again, we lost a lot of listeners over it, uh, but it was not fun for us to talk about new. And, and that's what we're here for. Yeah. And, and here we are having returned. Jumped do... all the way over season two like a kangaroo on steroids. I was content to never come back to this fucking thing. Joe does not have children. Joe has a lot of free time. Joe is able to uh, waste his fucking time as he sees fit with all sorts of garbage TV shows. Daring to to brave such paths as going back into the, the diarrhea wasteland of Westeros and, and watch fucking Game of Thrones nonsense again. Which was good. I mean, there have been good redemption arcs this year, Peter. And I understand your recalcitrance to believe me because I hardly believed it myself. But House of the Dragon was very good. Andor reclaimed Star Wars as a serious storytelling vehicle as far as I'm concerned. Well, they and already it, had Mandalorian going for him too. But like Andor is serious, like political adult storytelling in the star Wars universe. It was, it is wild that it exists and it's kind of crazy that it's as good as it is because it's just not a big enough audience for what they made. And that's what kind of 
shocked me and how good it was. And he used practical sets, a different, different show, maybe. So meanwhile, this season two of Picard's going. And as everybody knows, season two was still airing and bombing. Mm hmm. Horrifically. Like it absolutely had no other option to bomb. It was so bad that they immediately started launching Strange New Worlds to try to salvage whatever viewership they had uh, left in the Star Trek kitty. And also began actively promoting season three over season two. Yeah, while season two was going on, they trailered season three. And in that trailer, all you know is... All of the dudes come back. That's what they tell you. Now, go back to us getting hype about Picard in the first place. And there's a clear announcement up front that this is not going to be Next Generation Season 8. This is not going to be the adventures of uh, the bridge crew of the Enterprise on the Enterprise doing Enterprise things. That this was going to be a story about Picard navigating what the Federation had become. And I think at the time, you and I had both agreed that that was the correct story to tell, that there was some cool stuff they could have done. Both of us uh, not having any notion that the stories they decided to tell could be as fucking awful as they were. I don't think you and I ever conceived that it would be as bad as it was. It defied our expectations in the worst possible way wasn't just bad it was preposterous like it, yeah. it was bad stories that were ridiculous in scope and littered with trash characters you just couldn't give a fuck about we called it a jabroni circus or you did you called it a jabroni circus and season two was worse thankfully i'll never know you'll never know nor should you so you get into season three now and uh, my arm has been twisted behind my back to a point of everybody getting down on both knees to blow this thing. Strong outpouring of uh, requests from our own listener base to watch this and my own genuine curiosity because where there's smoke, there's fire and everybody in the world can't be wrong. And if they manage to take the Mandalorian in season three and turn that into garbage, maybe it was Freaky Friday and we're swapping good quality <laughs> content into Picard. And what Picard is going to give us and, and, you know, as is always a theme with our recordings, one of us, usually you has already seen all of the product and know what happens. And then one of us is going in essentially cold. And in this case, I have only watched episodes one through four up to this point. Um, I don't know if that was your own internal decision or if that's what most of the other media outlets are doing. I'll agree that episode four was a good cutoff. Yeah, the, it you kind of just kind of know after you watch episode four, like that, that's a good cutoff. I don't think there's a secret code there, except, you know, basic understanding that that's really how they wrote it. And what you can see in season, I'm sorry, episodes one through four is all the stuff they said they weren't going to do. Uh, lo and behold, getting the crew, getting the band back together on a starship, doing Star Trek things on a starship that looks like an enterprise was the right call all along there is a fantastic ign video that i will commend to everyone's attention that was in the discord and the title of it is for season three of picard to succeed patrick stewart had to be wrong and it really goes into detail of how patrick stewart's demands 
to do Picard to begin with was like no Star Trek things. I want to do Brexit. I want to do, I want to do political stuff. I want to do all these stories. There's science fiction, but I don't want to do all the Star Trek stuff. I want to be in a uniform. I don't want to be in a starship. You know, like I don't, no, I don't want to do any of that. Well, it turns out that those things are what make Star Trek Star Trek. And when you don't do those things and the show is bad, you just create garbage. Now, you could say history repeats itself. Is there any other piece of work we could have looked at where there's um, old big name Star Trek captains that tried to set out and do their own twist on sci-fi? And yes, it was called Tech War. <laughs> By Bill Shatner. Oh, God, I remember that. Yeah, it wasn't very good. It wasn't a nuclear uh, bonfire in your face that Picard season one and season two was, but it wasn't good. And it ultimately folded And you know, maybe uh, in hindsight, you could have looked at and said, "Mm, they're they're here for the thing. They're watching Star Trek for the trek through the stars. Maybe maybe we should season one of Picard. I think genuinely made me dislike. Patrick Stewart as a person, if I'm like, if he's in that executive producer role, if he's calling the shots, if he has the final authority, like maybe I've been wrong about this guy all along. Maybe he has not understood what it is he's doing. And I still stand by, you know, our our statement we harped on, which is the inmates cannot run the asylum. Yeah. And a good actor, it does not make a good director or good producer. Makes a good actor. Role playing character cannot be the game master administering the game you need to have a cutoff and there needs to be direction it needs to be this is the vision this is how you will deliver uh the script and you can interpret that within a certain amount of latitude but you cannot choose your own adventures here and speaking of the vision speaking of the someone that has to provide the rails that this particular uh roller coaster will be on uh, let us talk about the production of this season and how it is that this miraculous turn of events came to be. And really, it comes down to one name, one name that's come up for us recently in Enterprise because we reviewed his first uh, ri- writing credit. And that is showrunner of season three, one Terry Metalis. This guy's story is pretty awesome. He got his start as a very first job in Hollywood as, as a production assistant on Voyager, he was literally Jerry Ryan's gopher. And that will be important later. That was his job. He, he was Jerry Ryan's gopher. And he moved on to becoming uh, Rick Berman's personal assistant. He got to write some episodes of Enterprise. You're handling a lot of crocodile semen at that point. Yeah, I mean, you, you get to be a made man within the Star Trek production universe based on the level of crocodile semen you are personally willing to endure. And Terry Mattel is clearly endured it all. But of course, uh, you know, he, he got into this because he loved Star Trek growing up. He watched Next Gen. He's your age, Peter. And... This is what he was doing in his early 20s is he actually got into the production world of Star Trek, but he got in at the end and Enterprise folded uh, Berman and everyone else was out at Paramount and he found his way uh, into doing like sci-fi shows. I think the biggest one he did was 12 Monkeys, which I didn't even know was a thing that there was a 12 Monkeys television show ever. 
but uh, evidently it was a quiet banger. And that also becomes important because he made a lot of professional contacts in that, that I, he brought in to doing Picard season three at a minimum of cost that I think made it work. But Picard's being made season one's bad. Season two is even worse, but they have a distribution contract for three seasons. And it's, so there's money on the table if they just make something because they already have a contract to sell it. But they need to make it at the cheapest possible price because no one else is going to want it. This is this is a this project has died horrifically. Nobody wants to do it. Um, Alex Kurtzman is uh, not is off trying to do Discovery. Uh, Akiva, mm, not even that man. Like yeah, then the man who fell to Earth. That movie he was doing. Clarice, which was a uh, Silence of the Lambs spinoff, but it wasn't allowed to actually feature uh, main characters from it. That Paramount put a lot of eggs in that basket and he bombed hard on it. So the, the real tragedy of the story is that I believe there was a pretty good chance Kurtzman would have been out on the curb and Star Trek would have been free of secret robot. Uh, I'm sorry, secret hideout, bad robot had this Metallus guy not been able to fucking pull off an 11th hour win for uh, hack fraud Kurtzman. But I mean, to your point, Akiva Goldman went on to do Strange, Strange New, New Worlds World. behind yeah. Kurtzman's back, which I heard uh, caused quite a rift there. The franchise was in fucking shambles. And Metallus had wormed his way back into doing Star Trek because of who? Jerry Ryan, right? Got your old friend working on this show. They need people to make this shit. There's not anybody who wants to. They've run through two showrunners already. You know, like this, this hasn't gone well. Who are you going to get? Well, we've got this worker who's done low budget sci-fi his whole career and also did Trek back in the day. And Jerry speaks highly of him. Let's hire him. So he co-produced season two and like wrote a couple scripts and, you know, I'm that product didn't turn out, but I'm not going to put it on him because when the idea to do season three came up, the only way they were able to do it was he was doing it by himself. He had to shoot it concurrent to season two. So as soon as they wrapped on season two, they were immediately shooting season three and they just redressed existing sets. And I mean, the cheapness of the show is evident in terms of its production man i gotta disagree i gotta disagree like i was really trying to watch with a fine eye through these first four episodes and see like where's the shitty corner cutting and i don't know where it's at well no that's just it he hit it because he's good at doing cheap you know like he doesn't they only had the sets they had from season two from the stargazer that they just redressed into the titan that's all they had that's what the whole season is, is on the starships. And, but that's the whole point. He made it produce like Star Trek. It was inexpensive. They had to use all the parts of the Buffalo they had available to them. And that's the golden egg of Star Trek is that it should not be a run and gun. Uh, high production value cinematic experience. Yeah. Should it be should a lot be of close and tight. <laughs> cerebral drama using one of five pre-established sets or uh, the caves on planet hell redressed to whatever the mucky planet's going to be this week. Precisely. And so this is what he's left with. He knows how to do that. He's literally done it. 
And he's got a vision and his vision is we got to give the people what they want if we want them to watch. And he managed to get everyone back from next gen on non-standard credits, which was a, which is shocking. They're all billed as guest stars or special guest stars. There are three credited main cast on this show, Patrick Stewart, Jerry Ryan, and Michelle Hurd. And that is it. I don't know what the finances are here. I don't know what these actors were paid given the budget constraints, but you know, let's be honest with ourselves. What do any of the original cast members have going on right now that they would not be able to try to salvage one last hurrah. So the next convention, they can charge another extra $20 to get a signature on their headshot. Yeah, no, the economic incentives are there and the cultural incentives are there and go boosts are there and enough time has passed where even if the actors who got a little tired of it realized this is the best work they ever had. Right. Um, Particularly for for people like Michael Dorn, who had the most at bats being in Trek because he did half of DS9 and all of that, like they want to do it. Like this is the this is what they're known for. They they know this character. They know it's this Galaxy world. Quest, man. Yeah, and the, you you go to Galaxy Quest. Them hitting those convention circuits, like the realization that like maybe it wasn't that bad after all. And again, you you can cut a lot of leeway to the original series cast members. They had no idea what was going to happen to them and their careers for what four seasons, right? Three, three seasons that would yeah. You could say haunt or you could say uh, last the entire rest of their life. But from TNG Ford, everybody knows what Star Trek is. Everybody knows what the Star Trek fan is about and where your career is going to go after it. And with precious few uh, exceptions, this is it. So that's what they signed up for. That's what they got. and, And they're lucky they got this. I'm curious how for all the big talk out of Patrick Stewart, who is a wealthy movie star at this point, yeah, a knight <laughs> does not need to do this stuff. He went back in because it was a soapbox for him to stand on and preach politically. Uh, his vision bombed two seasons in a row. When Terry McGillis gets up to bat. Terry McGillis. It, <clears throat> sorry. I, I keep thinking fucking Batman Beyond. <laughs> Harry Metallus. Whatever. Um, Patrick Stewart's still an executive producer. Yeah. Does some studio rat? Is there someone that comes in over Stewart and says, uh, fuck your message. You're doing Star Trek now, whether you like it or not, and twists his arm into it? Or does he finally have to eat some fucking humble pie and say, I don't want this? This is not good, and this is not what I want to be remembered for. Terry Metalis talked him into it. That's the actual story. He said, you want you want this to go out on a high note? This is what it's got to have to be. And you're going to have to give on everything you didn't want to do. And he talked him into it. And I think it's because Terry Metalis is a fan of Next Generation. And he literally grew up with the show. And he's like, people like me desperately want this. Help me make it for them. Do you Help- think Patrick Stewart really cares, though? Like... If he's, if he's he cared actor. about what he wants, f- he wants people to fucking love him. Are you kidding? Sure, but I mean, like you know, he he does wants he to care hear about it? what the average Star Trek neckbeard really thinks. I I don't know it, and you're not going to get the straight talk on this stuff for a long time. 
uh, Hollywood Paramount needed this thing to work. You're getting a song and dance at jump forward after this is already done and over um, LeVar Burton going on the view. Oh, yeah. Oh, Selling you know, would it be something if if Star Trek let you know if, if the voyage continues after this with a new crew that we brought in this next generation of cast members? And what if he called it legacy? And let's sign a petition. It's like. This is not organic. The view is not a a place where a fluid conversation happens. It's a fucking marketing tool. And this is going out there, which ironically, and going back to hack fraud, Antichrist Kurtzman. Uh, this thing did take off. Paramount did foolishly extend secret uh, hideouts uh, license on this. They did ha- have to give them a certain amount of green lights. And we got some bullshit coming in for Section 31. Yeah, they're making and- that movie be- because they have a contract already in place with a woman who now has an Oscar. It's right? because that's been like Kurtzman's fucking hard on us to do this goddamn section 31 bullshit nobody wants they're doing this starfleet academy nonsense i forget what the other thing they greenlit i don't see legacy as of uh april 29th 2023 that still has not been greenlit yet so yeah the 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 lot of the talk in the hollywood press which means this is the story that they want out there now that's come as a consequence is well you know we definitely want to make it but you know, it's going to have to be in the back of the line with everything else we've decided to make. So it's not it's now it's gone from we'll see to soft. Yes. But, you know, we're going to have to get all of these other projects that we've announced. All of the, the shit that nobody wants, all the shit that's going to bomb, all the stuff that has plagued Trek for the past. How many years has it been now since Discovery came out? 2017. <clears throat> yeah. So it's been uh, six years. And the only thing short of. Lower Decks, which I personally love, and Strange New Worlds, which was good. Yeah. But Picard and Discovery, where all the money was and all the effort, nosedived and just hemorrhaged viewers left and right. And, and the, the big redemption on that, no action on it. So that's Alex Kurtzman and, and Secret Robot for you. But anyways, in the end, Terry Metalis convinced, apparently, Patrick Stewart, like, hey, we're going to have to do the thing. And you don't have to wear a uniform, which right. is absolutely something I noticed through this. And, and they, you know, Terry Metalis had nothing but stone knives and bear skins, but it turns out that actually leads to good Trek because it makes it so that your actors have to act. And if there is a through line in this show that I can say for the whole run is maximum effort on the part of every actor who's involved in this with the one exception of Michelle Hurt who cannot act, but uh, everyone who can act acts as, as hard as they can. And even Patrick Stewart turns in an excellent performance throughout the show uh, with nuance and uh, with a read on Picard that really matches kind of the read everyone else's, which is, the they are their characters, but they're 30 years older and they have changed. But they are still kind of the people you remember, but they have aged appropriately. They have changed with the with the with the experiences that they have had. And so, like, for example, like Stuart as Picard is he's on the ball. He's he knows what the fuck is going on. He's giving good advice. He's taking correct actions. He's demanding accountability, but he's also not trying to be the younger version of himself. 
and impose himself and command the room because that's no presently not his role, right? Like he's retired. There are, there are real Starfleet officers with real current commissions that ultimately are going to be making the decisions. He's simply is working in his elder statesman role, but he is well in that. And they write that well for him. And then everybody else that starts to come in the first four episodes from the old crew, like Jonathan Frakes is awesome in this whole thing. I, I can't believe he just hasn't been acting for 10 years across episode one through four. Like Frakes is there. He's not bad, but I, I don't feel the overwhelming glow that, that you're giving this guy. Like maybe five and deeper. It's better, but like, I've got some, I think episode four, he really turns on the jets. That conversation he has with Picard in the observation room about the death of his son. That's good. Yeah. My view overall on episodes one through four. And maybe it'll get better. I don't think it's the best thing I've ever seen. I wouldn't even be willing to call it great, but it's certainly good. And this is where Picard season one should have opened. Correct. And, And we can say this about just about any other fucking Star Trek property out there. None of them ever hit exactly right episode one. It takes a while to find the footing. Um, it would have been great to see them start here and see where they could have gone over the course of three seasons instead of it taking three seasons to get to this. And I guess my biggest question in all of this is. Why even bother acknowledging season one and season two even fucking happened? Like, well, they almost flat retcon season two. They I, they definitively act like that shit did not happen. No, but then they specifically call attention several times to the fact that Picard is a uh, soon type android. Which Correct. I would have thought that they would have just swept that right under the fucking carpet. So. Um, you know who Robert Meyer Burnett is? No. He is somebody who worked at Paramount doing all of the Blu-ray releases for TNG and doing like all the behind the scenes documentaries they shot for that. He shot those. And he's been a Trek super fan his whole life. And he kind of got, he got um, excommunicated, of course, because he hates New Trek. But he knows Metallus and he and Metallus got along and he helped basically convince a lot of critics in the online space to give Picard season three a try. And he answered to this exact thing. So like, why, why not just retcon season one? Like, why not just like forget any of that shit happened and move on? Or, Hey, you know what? This is an alternate dimension. But so part of it is that, you know, Metallus is trying to continue to work for these people. He wants to continue to do Star Trek. He can't motherfuck his bosses to their faces by just like acting like the shit they did doesn't count. And second, he found a way, Metallus, that he felt he could use what happened in season one to tell an interesting story for season three. And I, having seen the whole thing, I ultimately agree that he came up with a way to use it in a fat, in a way that, that worked. Um, there's some so. big asks. Not, no, they're not really big asks. There's, there's stuff that just seems weird. Like, the most glaring point is seven of nine 
who was this ridiculous Punisher vigilante Fenris Ranger, whatever the fuck that is, that was just going down and active shooter gunning down nightclubs and murdering people full on Terminatrix, right? And that over the course of what, three years, five years, I, I don't know what the, the time difference between the end of season one and the beginning of season three realistically could be, but miraculously now she's first officer uh, commissioned Starfleet. Like what? It's like one holdover from season two that they don't explain. It, it, don't, it don't worry thinking about it, but she got commissioned into Starfleet. So like that's a continuation of something that already happened. Frankly, I I'm fine with it because obviously Metallus has a better grip on who seven of nine is supposed to be. And she's vastly improved in this season as like a character. I'm not saying it's a bad fit. I mean, her role and performance, I Jerry Ryan's. Yeah. I mean, she's the best actor in the show. I think Michael Dorn's the best. No, (laughs) uh -uh. Worf is awesome. Worf comes off as corny in this thing, man. He's there's too many. There's too much silliness around him. Uh, they definitely in the first four episodes use him for lightness. Yeah. Um, and it's very DS nine because that's kind of how he gets used in DS nine a lot is that his, she comes off as the most realist actor. True. Uh, no, I think Todd Stanwyck who plays Liam Shaw comes out as the mm-hmm. realist actor. I, I, I'm, I'm giving the award uh, MVP to Jerry Ryan. I think she's in touch with who seven of nine should have been if season one and two didn't exist. Agreed. Uh, I think she her her dramatic scenes work the best. There's no cringe to her and it's just it's smooth and it all works. So and, I'm and, not and, criticizing her being this first officer. I'm just saying. Based on the fucking shit show of season one, like it's an odd place to see her plugged in. And again, it's a shame that season one had to happen. Also, uh, we mentioned this when we reviewed Strange New Worlds, and it applies here as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it. I'm just happy that Jerry Ryan, just as an aging, gracefully middle-aged woman, is just getting to do things. We pointed this out with Rebecca Romaine when she was Listen, playing number Rebecca one. Romaine does like, not have the Hollywood look anymore. She looks correct. like she could be a GM at any mall anchor store macy's and h&m whatever i'm not saying she's ugly i'm not saying there's anything undesirable at all but that hollywood starlet look is gone and i'm not saying that jerry ryan is still space barbie in her 20s but physically speaking she is on top her fucking game she might not have a ton of plastic surgery but this lady has the fucking genetics of a greek god and i mean yeah she's comparing different things here man I, I agree. Jerry Ryan is still a very attractive woman, but uh, you know, there there's two ways to go in this circumstance. And Jerry Ryan has chosen to allow herself to look her age. And, you know, uh, speaking to who get works and stuff like she has the looks, she has the fucking acting chops. I'm amazed. You know, she had a pretty good pedigree prior to Star Trek too, with like, you know, these procedural dramas and stuff like I'm surprised she's not working all over the place. And we have she, to assume- did, she did like Boston Public after Voyager. I, I she was did, before. That was after. She she mm. got work. That was in the early 2000s. That was after Voyager. Um, she she did things. I think that 
you know, she had kids and all that. Like, I'm sure that probably like made it by choice then. Yeah. Yeah. She probably didn't engage with it necessarily because of that. But anyway, that's enough of the production background. Clearly fucking wild how it came to be. So let's actually get into the episodes. So like you said, we're going to do one through four. And I think the the show kind of naturally has a cutoff on four. So it, it it's a nice compact story. And really one and two are a compa- you know, a, the same thing. There's just a lot of setup in one and two starts to actually pay the story off. And then it kind of ramps into three and four. And where we start is actually Fallout uh, four. Yeah, with Fallout three. <laughs> oh, yeah, three. Yeah, it was. Uh, I I don't want to set the world on fire by the ink spots, which any any true gamer has certainly uh, heard before, and it is because we are on a ship cruising around in space. Uh, but we we see uh, a a briefcase from Lieutenant Commander Jack Crusher, which is definitely from a TNG episode. Uh, we heard in some some captain's logs from when they encountered the Borg. And there is a security breach and who should pop out of bed, but one doctor Beverly crusher. And she starts in on a serious action sequence as apparently whatever ship she's on is being found. And that's where the very first a plus gold star thing in this show makes itself known. And that is the soundtrack is a certified banger from beginning to end. The, Metallus apparently hired his composer from 12 Monkeys and said, go just rework all the existing Trek music into big or, you know, a big cinematic score. And uh, it super works. Seeing Bev come in this uh, action Ripley uh, shoot him up fiasco where you've got competent enemy soldiers coming over with like laser Gatling guns. And she has a phaser shotgun, whatever yeah. the fuck that is. And like, she's killing them and like blown up like environmental hazards. Like uh, I start off very critical. Like this isn't Beverly Crusher. And I think the show will go on to do a nice job of bridging the gap of how does who you saw by the end of Nemesis turn into Peg Bundy from Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> There's there's some there's even more payoff as the time goes on, but they they whoever this Beverly Crusher is, she has lived a life, and there she is a, apparently a young male companion on this ship whom we are not yet acquainted with. Uh, whatever's going on here is become a desperate. She is injured in dispatching these invaders, and feeling that they have she has no other option, she sends a transmission to. John Picard, and that is when we come back to Chateau Picard and begin the show. Well, we've get an intro in there, and they start rolling this, and I'm like, okay, well, let's see what we're gonna do with the intro here, and it is just a real quick little do 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 Picard logo, and then we move on. And as I'm watching that, and I'm like, good, don't jerk me around. I don't need a long intro here. I have to think back to season one Picard and that convoluted, goofy DNA super abstract thing. And I really think this is like the point I want to like stop talking about Picard season one, but it's a nice contrast of here is goofy artsy shit that doesn't matter in season one versus season three, where it's like 
we got a big story to tell and we need to get the fucking show rolling here. Get back into it. Yeah, and I there, there is it. A, an opening to say, uh, so to speak, uh, but it's at the end uh, again, which great, is badass. A great theme music again. Like yeah. all I mean, it really the music adds so much to the show. I, you know, it, on the music real quick, though, like I'm tired of modern fucking rock and shit like this Guardians of the Galaxy draw people in with these classic oldies or like, you know, semi-modern stuff. I liked uh, I don't want to set the world on fire, but any of the other recognizable music moving forward, kind of a turnoff. Yeah, the use of Starship was a little odd, but this actual score was fantastic. Yes. And uh, reminiscent. I mean, that it's, yeah. it's given me the the TNG vibes. And it's and what use, it turned out I want after all. Good. Thank they you. use movie themes. They use they use TOS yeah. movie themes. They use they use TNG movie themes. They they do it all. So side note, maybe it'll be something for us to talk about in the later recap. But like, I thought that the rights were all a big mess. And that's why, like, Strange New Worlds Enterprise has to look different than any other enterprise. By the fact they're using all the scores and there's not. I'm just did 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 rights for everything like congeal and Metallus just have free reign to use whatever he wanted without having to change stuff. So all of that rights discussion have I've only ever seen from sort of fringe like gossip YouTubers that, you know, sometimes they are getting things right, but I've never seen any verifiable evidence that this rights thing is really as bad as they describe. And it's a it's a law question. It's a copyright question, you know, and there are I'm sure are multiple interpretations of things and I, I I just don't necessarily put full stock in what has been described to us is certifiably the case. You know, here's what you can certify right now. There was one good thing that came out of Picard season one, other than some legit badass action sequences. It's a uh, Romulan spy lady. Yeah. And we, we do get her very briefly here. She is with Picard in Chateau Picard and they're looking at a painting in the episode of the Enterprise D and, you know, she's talking to him about like, hey, can I get it cleaned? You sure you want to come with me on this on this diplomatic mission? Some shit you missed from season two. And this is the only important part is they're dating. Uh, her husband died off screen. Of course. <laughs> yeah, delete the just, husband. They deleted the husband so they could put the two of them together because, you know, like. Una Bradley is, you know, a very charismatic actor, and I'm sure Patrick Stewart wanted to to do that. So uh, that's why they're so close in these first scenes. But we do get here's what I'm close with. And it starts with the the opener, you know, going through Jack Crusher's belongings and other stuff. These museum shots, because he there's a there's a lot of Easter eggs and boy, am I here for him. And we got a little bit of this stuff back in uh, season one when he went into his like archive at Starfleet mm-hmm. headquarters. But man, he's got the Renoskin flute. He's yep. got the fucking tapestry over the back. The Enterprise <clears throat> painting uh, was similar to the one that he had in his ready room on the D. And he ties it all in. And we get a conversation that we have unfortunately had to have several times around Picard now. And it's. What is your legacy going to be? Do you care about it? Or are you only looking for the next thing? And instantly this 
these episodes one through four really do tie back to they don't tie back to they make me reflect on and in many ways they're ignorant of generations they're ignorant of generations expand i mean so generations which we already did a patreon of as as you would know since you're a patreon member and you're listening to this you literally basically forced us into this situation don't worry we noticed we get to generations which one of the big focuses is picard acknowledging that there's more days behind me than there are ahead of me what do i have to show for it i've dedicated my life to starfleet and uh you know i've always been able to kind of just be happy with that for myself because i knew my brother and my nephew and then there was the fire and they're gone and i'm alone and do i care about family uh is that a regret and I would say he certainly comes to terms with that by the end. And even Nemesis, which say about that what you will, but you've got a son you never knew about or you have some sort of offspring. And again, Picard's mystery son uh, is is another well-explored trope. It's like the fourth time we've been there. <laughs> sure. But uh, the 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 conversation. What's her name? Romulan spy lady. Laris. Laris, the conversation she has with him there is exactly what he went through in generations in his conversations with Troy. And I guess you could kind of look at that and say, well, this guy's had to come to terms. He's not looking like he's not crying. He's not sobbing. He's not an emotional wreck. So him telling her she she doesn't know what his feelings are. And he's able to say, I guess this is what I've decided is that there's only, you know, forward and I'm not worried about backwards. And, uh, you know, there's these things that are important to me, but I don't need them. I'm moving forward. I've got my eyes on tomorrow, not necessarily yesterday. I I don't consider I mean, I think you're all completely correct about your analysis. I don't call that I don't consider that ignorant of generations. If anything, I feel like the plot of this season completes builds on some of the sentiment in there, particularly obviously as it regards Jack, as we will discuss. Um, And this beginning, I think is necessary to just reset the conversation about where Picard is, right? Because they are hard ignoring season two in a lot of ways. And so, okay. So where is Picard at? Where's his starting point? And that is, he's kind of a little restless. He doesn't really want to like write his memoirs and, and, you know, he's making a joke about it, but he's looking for a thing to do and he's looking for a little bit of adventure in his life. You know, he doesn't want to be done yet. And, you know, ultimately, of course, he gets the monkey Paul curls one of the fingers and he gets his wish because what should happen. But one of his communicators from the good old days starts going off uh, while he's up writing correspondence in the evening. And it is a a message from Beverly Crusher. Uh, it is encoded and it has an encrypted set of coordinates with a, a message from Beverly saying that trust no one and don't involve Starfleet. Very mysterious, very weird. And when Picard starts to tell Laris about what has happened and she gives her Romulan spy opinion, it's like, you haven't seen her in 20 years. 
She is the only one you have that completely cut off contact with all of you for some reason. And now she's reaching out to you because you're probably her last best option for whatever fuck is going on. And you need to go help her. That's the bottom line. So he involves Starfleet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he he makes the logical first call, right? Like Laris kind of leaves the scene at this point, you know, and says, I know you got to go do this and I can't be involved. I'm a, I'm a Romulan spy and I don't know your don't know all of your old friends. So I'm going to go ahead and not crowd the, uh, the ensemble cast here and, and leave the show. And he, he instead calls who you want him to call. He instead calls who you expected him to call in episode one of season one. And that is William Riker. Number one. And they go to the bar and that is where the very first shot of Will Riker happens, where he is, at the bar trying to charm the bartender asking why the enterprise D figures aren't selling because of course there's Starfleet paraphernalia everywhere because they're on the verge of celebrating what is known as frontier day, which will be the 250th anniversary of the foundation of Starfleet. There's some shots here that I was a little salty about and had all I seen was episode one and had to wait a week before I got get into episode two. Like maybe I'd looked at him a little bit more sinister, but <clears throat> some punching down on TNG. Uh, you know, what? what why are uh, all these figurines, <laughs> all these Eagle Moss figures of the Enterprise D still around? Oh, you mean the fat one? Nobody wants those. Uh, Riker will go on to say like, oh, you know, I got a speech coming up. Who wants to hear a sad old man, you know, drone on about, uh, what do you say? Boldly going. Mm-hmm. And then Picard's like, I'm also giving a speech. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it'll be great. I feel like Riker's whole spot here as they start to discuss what's going on is that like, it's like his elderly dad, you know, he's going to go do this and he feels like he's got to go along with him, you know, to like help take care of the situation and take care of him. Like, I can't let Jean-Luc do this by himself, right? Like, I got to go if you're Will Riker. And he says like, you know, Kind of glad to be away from Deanna and Kestra, whose daughter. Um, he disclosed in season one that they lost a kid, right? Lost their son. He's he's here to help. And of course, it involves Beverly, involves part of the old family and wants to give some assistance. And that's where we get some backstory, right? They start to talk about how uh, the they were uh, using the Myriad codec because that they didn't know if they were being observed on some planet somewhere. And the word Hellbird was used because the Borg had introduced a computer virus. None of this actually happened in an episode of TNG. <laughs> this is just apparently adventures that occurred off screen. And ultimately, no, that would have happened during uh, when Picard was Locutus. Yeah, but the Hellbird thing wasn't in best. It wasn't ones. in the script. We never yeah. saw it. But for shit that they're just retconning in there works great. Yeah, no, it fits like I don't it doesn't matter to me that these things didn't happen in an episode. I know I mean, it's, it's a big fucking deal because there's a lot of times we watch Star Trek and they try to retcon the shit in there and it. It's awful. And this is a great example of one throwaway line of dialogue can make all the difference between me sitting here and complaining about it for four minutes or me saying good enough. Let's keep going. Sure enough, uh, the this this ongoing retconning provides the lead as to where well, it is where Crusher is hiding. 
I, I need I need my four minutes to rant about something now, though, Joe. Uh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and I can't. You know, it's not Terry's fault that season one happened and that it was so fucking bad. But man, when Riker's like, uh, you, John Luke, you know, I got to go. And then Picard goes, oh, Will, I can't ask you to put yourself in danger. And right there, I'm right back to what, you know, you said who should have been the first person he called. And that whole fucking thing, I can't ask my friends to threaten their life. I yeah. got to get all my throwaway fucking shitty new crew that we're never going to see again, minus the worst fucking one out of the lot. So Will Riker being very excited. And it's not to save, you know, Data's only daughter's life or, or whatever. It's to save another crew member's life. And there he is. Exactly what should have happened the first time around. It's happening now. It's good. And I do genuinely like that. Riker is seeking out this adventure because things are bad at home. Yeah. That you start to get the, the and that you find out in episode four. Oh, yeah. Beautiful scene that they have. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think like it it loops back to this moment specifically. Well, what is the thing he's hiding from? It was just the way he describes it. We buried our boy. It was only six feet deep, but it was so dark. Like those lines that he gives when he's de- describing his despair, right? Which is what he's doing. He's describing his is what my son is dead and there is nothing left of him for me to hold on to. And that he couldn't remain at home because his empathic wife could not endure who feels everything could not endure him feeling that nihilism couldn't endure her him feeling nothing i was like that was all so well done not just in how frakes paid off this this first mention of his domestic troubles and then eventually calls deanna when we finally see her really for the first time within the show but also in really like giving texture to Troy's powers in a weird way that I thought really worked is that she's an empath regardless of if you have good emotions or bad emotions. And if you're Riker and you are feeling dark, you know, um, sort of nihilism, like you can't shield her from it. Like she just gets it from you, right? It's just infecting Mm -hmm. her. And so you feel an obligation to flee physically so that your wife is not burdened by your depression. And also burdened by the fact that she's a trained counselor. You know, yeah. grief, she, grief counseling is like a forte. And like there you are unable to help your own husband for this thing. You're also it's an ugly mess. And, and him getting the fuck out of Dodge um, is is a good fit, a bad fit. <laughs> and if you take episodes one through four and why you can condense that story down into one podcast. I would say roughly 50% of this show takes place on Motless Metallus Prime. Metallus Prime. Yeah, he named it after himself. He did it. Yeah. And it's fucking Raffi. Yeah. Who is so bad, it just drags the whole fucking... You can take half of the airtime of these first throw episodes, four episodes, and just basically throw it in the fucking trash. Why is she the remaining crew member out of Picard season one that gets to be in this thing? You had a uh, hologram captain cigar. <laughs> yes. You had Driz, right? Correct. 
Who else was in this stupid fucking? Oh, seven the drummer, nine, the still drummer around. from Sex Bomb. Oh right, uh, what's yeah, her the, face? The, she the, was she the was murder scientist. Allison Pill. Yeah, who was arguably the best. I mean, season two kind of like prevented you from using some of these people. I won't go into it because it doesn't matter. Raffi seems to be on uh, Cigar Guys, Dosa Kize Man's uh, ship, right? Correct. But man, the amount of fucking screen real estate she occupies, and it's miserable. She cannot act her way out of a fucking. She is the worst actor ever on Star Trek. And we watch Anthony Montgomery. Like maybe, maybe she could beat out a precious cargo lady. Yeah. Like, maybe regular actor. Worst regular actor ever on Star Trek. Like, I don't know why people think Michelle er- Hurd can act. It is pain to watch her. There might be a character out there she's great at portraying. I want to say she was like some sort of like crooked police captain or something. And no, something she was I on saw. Law and Order years ago where she was playing a, a detective. She was she in was... Punisher, I think, or uh, Daredevil on Netflix. And she was like a a crooked cop or something. And she did that well. Recovering junkie, angst filled, whatever. Fucking miserable. So here, here's all that matters there is that she is undercover. Uh, she is. Starfleet intelligence. She's trying to work the underworld to find a lead on uh, some material that was stolen from a Daystrom Institute cold storage high security facility. Correct. She's got a handler that she's only communicating through with text messages, and she's trying her best and cannot get any traction in her efforts. When we cut back to Riker and Picard, they are launching into their plan. And their plan is, well, we got to take a Starfleet ship to go out of Federation space, which is ultimately where this signal is coming from, just outside Federation territory. So they got to find a way to get a ship to go there without telling them why it is they're trying to go there. Riker's plan, which Picard does not like, is... Well, we're going to spring a surprise inspection on the USS Titan or specifically the Titan A, which is important because this used to be Riker's command before he went into semi-retirement. He's a reserve officer now, and it is captained by a new captain, and that is Liam Shaw, played by, as I mentioned before, actor Todd Stanwyck, who is a guy from 12 monkeys. So this is someone that came along with Terry Metalis as someone he likes. And Liam Shaw is my favorite character of the season. I love this guy. Uh, Liam Shaw is an irascible, sarcastic jerk, but also competent, never really wrong. You know, like he doesn't like do incorrect things ever and has legitimate beef with our main characters for a reason that ends up being very beautifully, beautifully plays out over the course of the first four episodes. And yeah, this guy's not exactly a friendly face, but let's see. Let's figure out. Let's we we can talk him into it. And hey, listen, we know the XO is going to be friendly to you. And sure enough, when they get onto the Titan A. Uh, it is seven of nine, 
as a commander, as the first officer, although she does mention she goes by Commander Hansen at the explicit uh, command of Liam Shaw. And um, they begin their fake inspection going through the ship, which is uh, the set is well done for the Titan overall. I really like it feels like a Star Trek vessel, but modern. I'm curious why they didn't up the lights. You'll find out. I know, I mean, I'll buy that, I guess. Um, Shaw is specifically designed to be a piece of shit and unlikable and to shit on Star Trek fans. Um, I didn't get because... that at all. Oh, come on. When he fucking meets uh, Picard and Riker for dinner and he's already started eating. Yeah. And then goes on about... <clears throat> You guys are fucking cowboys blowing shit up, shooting stuff. This ridiculous diatribe where it's like Picard's entire fucking thing is that he was not Kirk. He was the diplomat. He was protocol and by the book. And this is all ridiculous. And this guy just being way too fucking hostile. Like, but there's is, a reason for it. That's what I'm saying. Like, sure, but I'm saying at first introduction, the guy is by design uh, offensive to not only the main characters, but should be aggroing the audience as well, being like, fuck this guy, he's full of shit and he sucks. I certainly understand. I understand what you're saying and that like at first that is how he's, he comes off. It's like, why is he being so aggro? But I feel like the fact that he had a very good reason for not fucking. Yeah, I'm like just saying him. out of the gate, he is designed to be a piece of shit. You said like insulting to Star Trek fans, and I, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, he, absolutely. Come- Dude, go back and watch that fucking speech he makes uh, where he's this accusatory tone and the condemnation that he has on Riker and Picard dismissing their accomplishments. And again, chalking him up to like idiot cowboys just fucking out there doing as they please and shooting the place up, which is the antithesis of everything that you see out of seven seasons. It is for us, but like you have to think of it from the perspective of Liam Shaw, right? He fucking hates these two because all of his friends are dead because of their stupid adventures, right? Like, and he tells the story. He is the the best scene of the first four episodes Mm. is him going into the holodeck and saying when he met Picard, which is at Battle of the Wolf 359. Sure. And he goes through the and whole Picard, narration. Who would also be in every fucking history book for like all of the other countless uh, accomplishments, first contacts and, and universe saving things he did. Like he's got a good reason to have a, a grudge, but to just classify him across it. Again, he's made to piss the audience off. And I think he accomplishes that well. And there is the, uh, you know, you were Locutus, you killed my friends. Like, that's all legit. And it begins a good redemption arc for him in the eyes of uh, the audience. And I don't know where it'll go past four, but, you know, him saving the day with his. His his old school grease monkey abilities in episode four, like it works. The guy's got shock value up front. That's what I'm saying. I'm taking exception to the idea that he was built to piss off Star Trek fans because his backstory is so entwined in the deep (laughs) lore of TNG that I don't think it's insulting. It's like it makes you wonder. You don't know that until episode four, though. I'm saying for the purposes of episodes one, two, and potentially three, this guy is there to be an asshole bad guy. He is shitting on the heroes 
Riker and Picard. He has effectively uh, subjugated and humiliated Seven of Nine by making her go by her, you know, dead name or whatever. Like, he is a bad guy by design, and he will improve later on. He's antagonistic. He's not a bad guy. I feel like there's a big difference between the two. No, and that starts with, what, uh, episode two? Like, and that was the one... <clears throat> where you said like it's an entire episode basic well we'll get to episode two but uh we do a quick around the bridge here too and this is something that you didn't get out of discovery of like here's people's names they yeah. matter some matter <laughs> more than others specifically the var burton's daughter who <laughs> is not miserable to have on screen and this is the real art here is that picard very picard season three very clearly has a ulterior motive of creating a spinoff. You have an infusion of new characters, some of which are reasonable and good to have, like LaForge's daughter, uh, Shaw, and some of these other Titan cast members. And then you've got Jack Crusher, who I, I feel a shoehorned in there. Like, he, well, let's talk about Jack Crusher real quick. Like, I could have done without him. I don't think he's bad. I think the worst thing about him, like the second biggest complaint after Raffi about this fucking thing is <laughs> the expectation you're going to take whatever this fucking what's Jack Crusher's name. The guy who plays him, Ed Spilliers. You're going to tell me Ed Spilliers is a fucking day under 38. Yeah. Okay. The If there is a plot hole in the first four episodes, it, it is in the ages, right? Like, as we will find out over the course of our drama here, uh, Jack Crusher is the son of Beverly Crusher and Jean-Luc Picard, consequence of a rendezvous just prior to Beverly leaving the Enterprise. And the problem with this is that would have put, what, Beverly in her 50s and Picard in his 60s, and he is supposed to be like 22. And... Okay, you know, the magic, the 24th century space magic, maybe like fertility is gone, you know, sure. able to be expanded. I'll buy that. But but uh, Ed Spilliers doesn't look nor reads like a man of the age he is supposed to be. This is a dude who's got way too much tread on his tires, who, who's seen too much, who's done too many things for me to buy that he's in his 20s. That man is in his 30s. And that works, too, frankly, you know, like it even makes them perhaps slightly more interesting. Uh, there was some time dilation. He spent some, he spent a couple of years on planet donut. <laughs> There's actually a, a ship later that's named after the astronaut from planet donut. That's dope. Yeah. There's like a lot of like just little things in this whole season where they, there's a part in this where Raffi's trying to piece together. Raffi's trying to piece together where the terrorist attack is going to take place. Uh, and it's Rachel Garrett's statue in front of the Starfleet recruitment thing, which I thought was fucking badass. The Red Lady. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's her memorial statue. You know, the heroic captain of the Enterprise. See, the 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 whole show is just filled with little m moments like this. I think Jack. I like I mean, you're finally doing it right. You're doing the thing you teased three times before. You're giving Picard a son. Right. Like this is he's. He's a family man. The thing he has never wanted to be. He was never Actually, comfortable it's around kids. Even more than that, because there was one son that showed up in TNG that was like a fake somehow. Was he like Correct. a genetic clone or? 
it was uh faked by a like some sort of deep temporary DNA that would make it seem like he was his son. That was like, I uh, was diamond box way of like getting back at him. Like in season seven, didn't he attempt to reconnect with him somewhere along the line? No. Cause it was in season seven. Like it was at the end of the show that that plot happened. Um, or there was some supplemental thing where like, or maybe we talked about that. It would have been appropriate. Uh, yeah, Picard's fake son or Picard wants a son might be like the sleeper trope of TNG. Yeah, there was remember there was the episode where there was the human that was being raised by the aliens and he kind of has to make a fatherly connection there. And then, of course, there's Shinzon. So whatever number this is, it's definitely it's definitely they've run X, this play. X times a charm, whereas yeah. X equals however many other fucking time. And this is the right way to do it because. It's with Beverly, uh, with zero mention of fucking Will Wheaton. No, he get, Wesley gets mentioned. I mean, not extensively, but in, Be- in, in this episode range. Yes. Beverly says in the confrontation when they finally talk, right? Like they don't talk about the fact that Jack is Picard's son until episode three. And they have the confrontation in sickbay. If you recall, where yeah, yeah. he comes down and is like, okay, you're gonna fucking explain how I have a son who's in a man who's an adult. I've never known this, and you just mm-hmm. didn't talk to me for 20 years. And she goes through like, I lost my son Wesley to the same stars mm. that have heavens that you belong to. You know, like I couldn't I couldn't lose another child, I couldn't lose another son to space shit. Like, I'm over that. <laughs> so he gets mentioned. But I think that giving Picard a son who's already a fully formed adult uh, is the right call. You you, you got to have someone who can read against him with some sophistication or it doesn't work. Giving him a son that is mildly antagonistic towards him and his existence. And we even get a little bit of reason as to why. And that works. I think the only thing that doesn't is, you know, like I get that Jack's superpower is supposed to be his charm. He just charms everybody. He's just like a smooth guy. Uh, But he's just very aggro all the time with people and shifts between like being, Hey buddy and being Mr. Charming. And then like, being pissed off in your face in a way that like that, that should throw up some red flags. Like, I don't know how it is. You're able to navigate all these social situations while hard shifting into kind of being petulant and then being the smoothest motherfucker on the whole ship. You know, I'm that, just saying the actor is way older than 20 something. And it, it sticks out ultimately everything you just said that him being uh, an adult, him being capable and what I'm going to assume the most important component to that being it being reasonable that this guy will eventually join the spinoff crew on a spinoff series uh, would make sense and be feasible. Also, Sydney Forge is not played by LeVar Burton's daughter is the is one of his daughters on the show. We have not met that daughter yet. Oh, this is played by a for real actor. <laughs> <laughs> which is why she's actually good. <laughs> so yeah, back to that real quick, the around the bridge, like there's new 
crew members and minor cast members. They're all charming. I don't want to strangle any of them and none of them detract from the scene they're in. We got a cool uh, Vulcan science officer named Tavine who's bald. I fucking love her look. I like the uniforms they're wearing, this uh, yeah. fold-over smock. Uniforms are kind of a mess. Every every ship seems to have its own different thing going on. If we're to bring season one in at all, they're still using the same com badges from season one, which I did like. Uh, but starting with lower decks, mm-hmm. they really started dipping their toe into different ships have different uniforms based on what their function is within Starfleet. And I buy it. Yeah, no, it it kind of created a canon excuse for the inconsistency between uh, shows and ships uniforms, which is a kind of a holdover from TOS because uh, different different uh, ships sure. had different com badges, mission badges. Yep. In TOS, so like it's kind of a callback to that. It's like different uniforms because the captains got different preferences. I do not like the phasers. They're using these uh, pistol Romulan disruptor looking phasers. I actually got kind of excited when Worf pulled out the old Type Two to kill the the baddie. Yeah, the changeling. Season one ends with. Uh, Shaw fucking pissed because seven to nine went behind his back while he was sleeping and diverted the ship out to the edge of Federation space. Uh, Seven has a great scene where she so Shaw goes to meet with Picard and Riker and Riker's like, hey, here's this plan. We're going to go way out of our way, but then we're going to show up on time and it's going to make us look great. It's going to be good. And Shaw's like, no, fuck you. I don't like this. I'm not going to look in your here. Eye. I'm going to shit on you. You know, you're a fucking retired admiral. Congratulations on that, by the way. You're a, uh, not a real captain. I am a real captain. Uh, we're doing this thing by the book. I'm not accommodating you at all. And uh, you can go sleep in fucking hot bunks. Yeah, go to some lower deck bunks. You know, head, sit, sit next to Ensign Boimler down there. You can go sleep in a hallway. And seven of nine confronts uh, Picard and Riker while they've been sleeping in their bunks and goes, give me the fucking real deal on this. Like she talks to Picard like a friend. And those were things that worked in Picard's season one was that they have, even though they didn't ever meet prior to Picard season one, they still had that common ground that they were both ex Borg and that gets thrown in their face by Shaw. Uh, but certainly seven will go on to establish a relationship with Picard over season one and season two. And it works well here where Riker tries to jump in and like cut her off. And he's like, no man, like we're good. We're, we're we're buddies. And she's, she's got a right to be pissed. And we find out that she's as mad as she is because without even conferring or conspiring with Picard, she diverts the ship to the coordinates they want. And she's like, I've just thrown my fucking commission away for you. Why am I doing it? Also, I question why I'm even in Starfleet. Uh, you know, you, Janeway, this leadership comes natural. I just feel stupid. I, I, it is an interesting plot point to like guide her character on, right? Let's get her out of being the Punisher and let's put her kind of into a role that we would expect Seven of Nine to be at this point in her life. You know, absent everything else, Voyager's home. She needs to find something to do, right? Which is a lot of what happened in season seven of her, like considering like, what the fuck is my life supposed to be? What she never wanted to, to be on earth. Right. Like she's an interest person who is interested in exploring Titan, by the way, 
is a what a deep space exploration vessel. Yes, it is an exploration vessel. It's a Constitution three class vessel. What is what is Titan one? Because when you they show the the conference room, same way Enterprise used to have. There's like golden models on the wall of the previous iterations, and there's three of them. The original Titan, the Titan before this was a Luna class explorer. So it was a similar ship built to ex- to go into deep space on diplomatic and scientific missions. And that's the one that Riker took over. Correct. And this is a, a rebuilt version of that ship. Like so literally was a, there was Titan Luna and then there was Titan two and that got refurbed into the constitution or no, the, the Titan that Riker was captain of is this ship, but it has been, rehabbed into an entirely new class of vessel. So it is no longer, it was a Luna and then it gets turned into. To a constitution three. Uh, the, the reasoning, you know, this is all stuff that came from the production staff on Twitter as the episodes came out was because so much of Starfleet's shipbuilding capacity was destroyed when Utopia Planitia blew up that as ships aged rather than decommissioning them, Starfleet is taken to repurposing and re- and rebuilding them into new designs to extend their service life. And so when the Titan reached a certain age, they're like, well, we don't want to just scrap it. We're going to instead rebuild it under into new specifications. And that's what they built in the plot point of Shaw being necessary to fuck with the cell coverings because they're from the original version of the Titan. They're 20 years old. I don't really care for the design. That scalloped look of the saucer in the back makes it look not pizza cuttery, but I certainly prefer the uh, the Luna configuration. I think the mission pod or like the roll bar or whatever it is on top. Uh, the vaguely Miranda looking uh, pylon placement. And yeah. certainly they're going for here the imagery of an enterprise. Right. It's not an enterprise, but it looks like an enterprise and it looks more like obviously the constitution, you know, 1701, 1701A ish. And I think that's cool uh, that they're on a starship. It's not enterprise, but it's enterprise enough. And, and it's taking them off to do Star Trek things. It works. Picard and Riker, they fly out in the ugly ass shuttlecraft. They dock. There's a line in there I like where Picard's complaining about his hands cramping. And then uh, I think Riker says something like, great, your hands uh, are cramped. My knees are fucked up. As long as we don't get in any uh, gunfights, we'll be just fine as they get ready to like four century. They get in there. Jack Crusher attacks them. They find Beverly in the stasis pod. There's some back and forth. And then uh, the bad guys reveal himself in a very bad robot very pointy, huge, evil-looking bad guy ship. So this is when when we get um, Amanda Plummer playing Captain Vatic. Vatic, well, I should say, Amanda Plummer is actually Christopher Plummer's daughter. So Christopher Plummer was General Chang in, in um, Star Trek VI, you know, classic theater-style actor who did tons of film. And Vatic is a fucking psycho. And they make that clear from the beginning. She just acts like one. She's like the one on the bridge, like 
Cat, General Chang before her, <laughs> like quoting Shakespeare and and being uh, fucking over dramatic, and you know like smoking a cigarette while wheeling around in her fucking chair with a goddamn scar on her face, like yeah. <laughs> then she's just like, I'm just gonna be the hammiest fucking bad guy I can possibly be, and be gleeful in being evil, and that's just gonna be my vibe. And I kind of like that she just went all in on it. This character works great. Yeah. Something looks off about them. Something feels off about them. Uh, and that will all come into perfect clarity later on. This is a great Star Trek villain for Picard to have to deal with on many levels. It's an interesting position, excluding whatever the fuck happened in season one, season two. But Picard to be in a situation where he is severely outgunned. He is not on a flagship. You know, even the the galaxy class would be uh, matched one for one with like a Romulan warbird. But even though he's in a nice Federation vessel later on in this, it is still not a warship. And this thing, uh, the description of what's this thing called? The Shriek? The Shrike. Yeah. The Shrike, which was a Romulan... Attack class, wasn't it? Shrike class. Yeah. Um, you remember there was an episode in TNG where they scan something and it's like this gunboat. And then Riker's like, Worf, uh, hit it with the phaser and disable it. And Worf gives it a little love tap. And this thing's like so armed to the teeth, the whole thing just fucking blows up. And Riker's like, I told you to disable it. And he's like, I, I didn't mean to blow him up. They just, he was just so fragile. That's this thing only. It's not fragile. It's got every gun in the book. So the they've quickly established that the the Shrike is after Jack and that the, she presents herself as a bounty hunter and that Jack is a wanted fugitive in Federation space and without and she's here to collect. Of course, our heroes are disinterested in allowing her to uh, to seize him. Uh, we get. This is kind of where some of the cheapness and, you know, the age of your actors comes into play. They try to do an action sequence on this little medical ship, the Helios, and it's very low rent because, like, a couple guys come in and Riker just, like, rolls a grenade (laughs) over and blows them up. And they're like, okay, now they'll never show back up again because clearly trying to come over here is a death trap. I rolled a grenade. Very era, Berman era Star Trek can tell me that you can trap Klingons in a ring of fire and That's humiliate true. them and they will leave and never come back. It is in the then, Berman era tradition. You're right. You're right. You know Bad what? Action. Bad gunfights. Well, Riker can throw a grenade at some fucking dudes, grease them and them go, you know what? We're not going back over there. They put up some uh, pattern dispersers so they can't uh, beam them off, which is good thinking. Yeah, it's like one of the things that I mentioned before where like Picard is kind of playing about our head of the curve. He's like setting this stuff up and he's like, yeah, I set it up because I wanted to see what they were after. They tried to beam you out. So I think they're after you <laughs> like, oh, OK, good. You you weren't effect- that effective the last two fucking seasons, John Luke. But cool. I'm glad you're here now. There's three stories that happen in the episodes of one through four. Uh, there is the here and now Picard Riker Starfleet story. There is the god-awful Rafi's adventures in the ghetto. And then there's flashbacks. There's a lot of flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And 
the flashbacks left me feeling incredibly jealous that these stories that get told offhanded, like Picard's encounter with the fucking Herogen. Yes. And all sorts of stuff, just stories I want to hear. And that, that <laughs> would have worked and been like, wow, we, uh, I, I want more of this. So Picard and Worf versus the Herogen Alpha? <laughs> Give me that. Guess those uh, holographic growing pains didn't last. So Picard thinking ahead of the curve, wherever you thought you knew Picard ending in Nemesis, he had a lot more adventures after hands-on action adventures and seeing him. Now, he's not rolling down hallways and, you know, running up the ceiling like fucking uh, the EMH and <laughs> inside man. Uh, but yeah, preemptively putting up these pattern dispersers, stuff like that works. Ultimately, uh, this ship gets caught in a tractor beam. They're not going anywhere. And then this badass shot. And I loved it when I saw it in lower decks. And I love it here. We're just. And then Titan uh, Shaw basically with a gun to his head at this point. Am I going to let two Federation heroes die in this uh, insubordinate yeah, treasonous? Am I going to go back to Starfleet Command and tell them I let the, the, the man who saved the galaxy multiple times perish? Yeah. Even if I hate him and I have all the reason in the world to hate him, I don't think I can actually explain me just watching him die. You know? Am I going to act like a bitch? You no, know? No. And, that, and, that's and a, Liam Shaw ain't no bitch. You know, okay, I'm the captain. Fine, let's do this. There's a great scene of uh, Seven and Nine calling him out, too, uh, who also along the way gets relieved of duty and confined to quarters. But there comes Titan pops in, severs the tractor beam. Now the medical ship's loose. They beam everybody over. And Shaw has a huge fucking mess on his hand because there is a bounty hunter in a ship with way more guns than Titan has. And more importantly, there is a very morally ambiguous legal gray area that they are neck deep in. They're not in Federation space as Shaw rightly points out, I cannot fight this monstrous ship. I'm in an ex exploratory vessel. I'm not built to fuck with this thing. We, If we fight this guy, we will lose. That's what he says. Like, just that's the fucking math. I'm looking at it. And now I got to find a way out of this fucking circumstance because she is saying, I ain't letting you leave with my bounty. I want Jack Crusher. Give him to me and I'll leave you be. Don't. And I will fight you. You get one hour to decide. And maybe this will help you make up your mind. And then she's got a tractor beam that can grab shit and throw it Half-Life 2 gravity gun style. And she throws the uh, the uh, Bev's ship. Yeah, the Helios at the Titan. And it like there's a lot of great space effects. They really spent a lot of their money with the CG team because they know people want to see it. Right. It's what they you're there for. It's what you're there for. So here it is. You see this thing scrape across and like all the details are right, too. Like you see the shields are protecting the ship and how the shields protect the ship. You know, they're like close to the to the to the hull and that sort of thing. And it scrapes across and you see it break apart. And they're like, holy shit, she threw that ship at us. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> this is real bad. And so now, go ahead. So now you have a. Honest to God, Star Trek episode where there is no clear right answer and the crew is going to be left to have to uh, 
uh, sort out what the right course of action is going to be because what feels like the right answer and what the law says is the right answer are neck and neck. They're even on the scales. The Oh, a quick catch up on our B plot, <laughs> which is uh, Raffi not being able to act. Raffi getting too much screen time. And, you know, she's trying to, like, barter with this stupid, you know, this contact that won't tell her things. And she gets frustrated and she can't act. Sorry, I'm not going to stop talking about Michelle or can't act. Uh, The Starfleet Recruiting Center gets fucked up by a portal gun. Literally the gun from Portal is used to, like, suck this whole building out from the ground and then gets just all the debris showered in another place as a terrorist on an, on the second building. It, it's really cool. Like, Super good. I love it. And you know, this raises the desperation there's fucking shit about, and she is going to pursue a lead that a, there's a Ferengi crime Lord named Sneed that may be responsible for the hijacking of this weapon. And she's going to explore it. Um, so Conveniently, that- her ex-husband just so happens to have a bar on this planet. She taps him as a contact. He goes, uh, you know, our son who you botched your reunion with said that, you know, you're bothering him. And hey, you know, I'm going to give you a choice. We can fix our family and you can be a good mother and whatever. Or. I can put you into contact with Sneed and you have to choose. And luckily they don't make her have to actually say, you know, as little acting out of her as possible. She picks Sneed because she's a junkie. She's addicted to the hunt. And he goes, all right, I'll set it up. But Sneed, I like the idea of a Ferengi crime boss. Like the Ferengi have always come off as comic relief whenever they're used. And the idea of like a hardened criminal Ferengi would be yeah, fucking Yeah, he's Gary vicious. Oldman from, uh, was it uh, True Romance? Where he's the, like, Rastafarian. Oh, yeah, okay. Was that True <clears throat> Romance? I forget. I know what character you're talking about. I, he was also the criminal bad guy in The Professional. Yeah, but that guy's calm and collect. This this guy's just a, a piece of shit slaver. Yeah, he's uh, got, like, I like hats and everything. I like it. I like the alterations they do to the Frangi physically. They bring the earlobes down, but they're still overly pronounced. It looks good. It looks real. Uh, The guy seems sinister. We'll just finish this plot line off real quick. Raffi goes to confront him. She's got a real half-assed story. Hey, this Romulan guy you're trying to pin all this on. I know he's a uh, scapegoat. I represent him. He wants to know why you're smearing his name. Uh, Frangi goes, well, I know you don't represent him. Or I don't think you represent them. I think you're Starfleet. I want you to do the drugs. I know you're addicted to Stardust or whatever the fuck it is. She does the drugs and he goes, ha ha, I've got the Romulan's head here. I don't even lose ends. Um, I'm taking all your money and we're going to kill you and I'm going to take your head. And I'm like, thank God, please kill her. I, I'm, do- I'm done being on the receiving a- end of ass whippings. It should be me doing the ass whipping henceforth. <laughs> Ninja Wharf. It was, you know, Michael Dorn's only request. Make it so I body everyone. <laughs> right? Like, and that's that's what he does. You know, we even get the Klingon battle music, right? Every comes right on scene, like dun, 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 
and he is mechlething the fuck out of these dudes. He decapitates them, including Sneed, uh, and collects Raffi. And sure enough, it's very clear that it is Worf who was her contact all along. And this plot line will continue to when they they go and get like a potential prisoner to interrogate after decapitating all of Sneed's dudes. And um, this is where you start to kind of connect the overall meta plot, which is with changelings, which is a very DS9 thing. And the, we actually had a discussion about if you were going to continue to uh, watch the show or you should watch the show based on how much it spoils for DS9. And it ultimately kind of like just stops with the, you know, the changelings or the founders and uh, which you already knew. Quick side note, uh, everything was spoiled for me on this. Um, yeah, we you tried to avoid it, but there was no avoiding it. Yeah, uh, I, I'll be surprised by the end of this if there's anything that I can point to and say that it wasn't spoiled. I knew that Worf was going, and this isn't because I'm watching videos. This is bullshit headlines and just YouTube thumbnails or whatever. I knew that Worf was going to be her handler, which was kind of cool watching the dialogue he had with her through text messages. Very Worf dialogue. The only other dialogue it could have been was like maybe data or something which would have been interesting um <clears throat> but obviously you know in hindsight it's a shame i didn't watch his stuff as it came out because i couldn't sit there and you know conjecture and theorize but yeah war fucks everybody up grabs her brings her back to her ship uh who are you son of moog uh you know son of alexi Slayer of uh, Gauron, Bane of Duras, this and that. Hey, I made Kim a multi. I have been, as humans say, working on myself. Which, again, the, the humor goes a little too far with him. It's not miserable. It's not bad. It's just a smidge too much for my taste. It's it's zingy. It works. But he's also like the most comfortable just playing Worf, though. Like played him for so long. Yeah, he has like he has the most uh, experience in being on track, and he his just ridges, slips slips right back in. His ridges, the the makeup they're using on him. They said it was different. Like Michael Dorn said, like the process had changed a lot since the last time he played him. The, the ridges are very clearly different. Like he yeah. looks more like a uh, TOS undiscovered country Klingon than he does uh, how he did in, by season seven or whatever happened through DS nine. I pro- imagine they did that just because it's probably more comfortable for him. Sure. I mean, you know, he's the youngest of the main cast and he's in his sixties. I mean, I'm sure you don't want to sit in the fucking makeup chair all day with that. Sure. Um. So the, they they determine through their investigations that there is some sort of changeling nonsense occurring here. In fact, there's a line from Worf that suggests that Constable Odo tipped him off to the fact that there are changelings doing fucking changeling bullshit. And um, that's got something to do with whatever's going on, which does not actually get fully developed in these four episodes. And in fact, this plot does not actually ever intercede with the main plot. In the first four that doesn't happen until the fifth episode. So sure. That's it. That's it for that. We'll stop talking about Raffi. I think Worf's great. <laughs> I think uh, I just, he just feels like Worf. He is Worf. And I, I really appreciated how much he felt like him. You know, I thought that the portrayal of Riker in this episode was much better than the first one. Maybe it took a little bit of time for 
Frakes to to really get back in the saddle. Maybe the dialogue was a little more conducive to it, but I think Riker's a hard character to write for because he's got this impish rep, and I think too many people want to play into that. Like when I think about all the characters to write for, Will Riker is probably the weakest because uh, he was supposed to start as this hot shot up and comer. <clears throat> and that was really his good arc was that he should have left the D a long time ago. That's what Shelby calls him on. Right. And then right. him having to, to come to terms with, do I want this career? Do I want to succeed or do I want to acknowledge the fact I enjoy where I'm at to my own detriment? And that was all great. But in the time since next generation, and the movies, this internet sensation of uh, Will Riker exists to put his penis in things and to flash a smile, I think really became a detriment to the character for the writing on this. So him talking about his dead son uh, was a good chance to kind of ground the character as a real person and not just uh, an internet meme anymore. What point does he get command of the Titan? During episode three. So episode two, the tension is really Picard finding out that Jack is his son. Because he's not confronting it. He's kind of quietly not addressing it. Because Beverly is incapacitated until the very end. So there's no confirmation. Uh, Riker is the one who's trying to like just, just being like, you know he looks just like you, right? Like... Beverly's son, 20, do the fucking math, John Luke, like literally says it to him. (laughs) What's bro What's wrong with you? That's your boy. Like, we know that's your boy. I have eyes. I can see that. You can see that. You tell me you never put your D in Bev's V. Are you serious right now? Yeah. He knows that they have, right? Like they have that turbo lift where he's Mm -hmm. like, John Luke, do the math. (laughs) You fucked her. And she made that (laughs) like, He's your son. You know, it's it's a very frank conversation between two men who have known each other for a lifetime, right? Like, I'm I know you don't want to confront this. And and Patrick Stewart's uh, uh to to his credit as well, you know, he's like he knows. He's just kind of like burying it, you know, he's just it's in his expression. He also has bigger fish to fry in this because over looming all of this is you have a one hour episode and over the course of this hour, we need to determine, are we going to hand over this fugitive to a bounty hunter as is reasonably expected as we are outside of Federation law? Or are we going to go into a fight that we are going to 100% lose? And they're right on the edge of this uh, nebula, which nebulas are put there specifically for running and hiding the time honored (laughs) tradition confirmation is made that this is his kid uh, that changes things. And just as Shaw is getting ready to order him over, Picard finally puts his put down, overrides Shaw's orders, says belay that, keep him on. And in that moment, I think that is really the first time since Picard season one, where you really see Jean-Luc Picard put on the daddy pants and season three is much more kinder to Picard. Season one, especially, it's him apologizing, just guilt over and over and over and over again. You're like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. This hero has been emasculated. And yeah, he was purposefully emasculated in that season. That's what we hated most about it. 
everybody shits on him for every little thing. And everybody is ignorant to the fact this guy saved the, the universe a million times over. No one is making him apologize for anything here. But like you said before, this guy's taken a backseat in a lot of conversations. And it's in the end of episode two where he comes out of his cocoon and goes, God damn it, I'm a boss. And I'm about right. to start fucking laying down the law here. I'm going to put my foot down. I'm going to give some fucking orders and you're going to do what I say. And everybody takes a step back. Shaw kind of shirks and goes, we're going to yes, fucking sir. pay for <laughs> <laughs> Like, yes, sir. Yeah. I'm going to throw you to the, I'm going to throw you under the goddamn bus once we're out of here. But, oh yeah, uh, it turns out you are in charge after all. Yeah, it, it is a story ultimately of across the season of Jean-Luc reestablishing himself as, the leaving balls, you know, and, and it felt great to watch. Yeah. And it's very gradual. Like even these first four episodes are really only part of that story, right? Like it really takes to the end where he's really the one who is in charge of what's happening. And uh, going into episode three, of course, they're starting to, the, to fight against the shirt shriek. Uh, we have a, a classic, even in the 25th century, there are IEDs everywhere. And one of those IEDs goes off a little too f- close to Shaw's face. And he gets like, his, no, his <laughs> leg, gets, his the leg gets, floor blows up underneath. him like a fucking ejector seat launches him and he busts. His, he gets knocked. He breaks ribs on a railing. Ironically, there to hold on to. So such things don't happen. And then I think he hits his head on like some of those sharp ass stairs. This is why in Berman era, you put nice carpeting down on the floor yeah, of your. Don't you miss the carpeting? You need it. It's not it, it's there for sound dampening. It's also there so you don't break your fucking face on a 90. <laughs> the, the galaxy class has a ramp, a nice gradual ramp, not these stairs. Stairs break bones, stairs break ribs. So and that's uh, what happens in his in in his injured state as he is being led back down to uh, sick bay. He angrily puts Riker in charge because he's grounded his first officer. So doesn't have that. He's got a bunch of kids on the bridge. So he's like, you, you got us into this. You're getting us out of this. And he transfers Commander Riker and he fucks off to sick bay to be put back together. And it's so a real fuck. Yes. Moment, by the way, there, too. I mean, it's again, it goes to Shaw <laughs> being like, he's still a professional, right? Like he he's not wrong about the situation being fucked, that they shouldn't be in it. And he's like, you know what, Riker? You fucking fix this. <laughs> like, I am now going to be unconscious for a while. So you handle it. I just spit out two mouthfuls of blood and there should have been some fucking teeth in there. I know you guys uh, begrudgingly are cow by my own, you know, words, you're cowboys and and going off rogue like this is your fucking thing. You've dragged us into it. Now you fix it. And this is good writing here too to like get him out of the way, get Riker back in that command seat, which felt very gratifying to see Riker grow parables and start giving some fucking orders. And then Jean-Luc becomes his first officer. Just kind of like, okay, I'll be your number one, but you are a, you are still an employed employee of this of this organization. I am not, so you know you're you're in charge. And that's cool. Dyna- yeah, it was very interesting because ultimately Riker is too cautious. He's trying to like he feels very self aware of the fact like this ship and all of its and all of its crew are in danger because of our shenanigans. Uh, that's bad. I need to get everyone out of this without getting them killed. Right. That's his priorities. And Picard is trying to tell him like, bro, you're going to have to fucking fight this bitch. 
you cannot just run. <laughs> you, you're going to have to use some kind of tactical advantage and you're going to have to ambush her and beat her. That is well, the before way they out. even get to that, they got to get away to lick their wounds. Yeah. And the best way to get away from the bad guy in Star Trek is it's to... hide in a nebula. <laughs> you no, know, well, it's to start by lighting a fart on fire. So they shoot a probe or a torpedo or whatever, and then they shoot that with a phaser, and it blinds her long he, enough that they can... Riker half explains the plan to, to Picard, and Picard's already doing it. I thought that was so funny. Like, quick, if you set off the flight, the farts on, he's just like, pshoo, pshoo. like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, I am, I'm Jean-Luc Picard. I've been a space captain for 40 years. I, I know how to light a fucking fire on fire. Let's get the fuck out of here. By the end of this exchange with her at this point, or along the way here, I was really expecting to see the Picard maneuver come out. And oh, I'm yeah. hoping by the end of the episode, by the end of the the series, the Picard maneuver gets to come out one last time somehow. Uh, but they get off. They fly out. Before we even get to this point, though, there is a flashback of uh, Picard and Riker celebrating the birth of Riker's kid. They use the de-aging on it. It yeah. looks good. And he's, and he's wearing the first contact uniform. So that's how, like, they look de-aged. He's got the first contact uniform on. And they're talking about how, you know, he came down and, you know, he, he was so small and he just wanted to, you know, fatherhood stuff. And, yes. You know, Picard's like, oh, that's great. I'm glad you're a dad. <laughs> Troy calls and is like, get up here. Your son's a fucking handful. <laughs> it's like, OK. Seven of nines confined to quarters, which jump back to uh, me criticizing Jonathan Archer's Mary Sue ass who, you know, helped design the fucking Warp 5 engine, yet when there's engine repairs to be done is not there. Like, if you've got one person on that ship that should be helping fix the fucking engines, get her off house arrest. Get her yeah. down in the fucking engineering. Be like, you are the smartest human being in the in galaxy. Existence. Yeah. Go realign the fucking warp coils. There's please. no engine set, though. I mean, it's part of the problem with the season is they they didn't build one for season two. So there is not one for season three. Engineering sets are expensive and not even TNG was supposed to have one. Uh, Gene Roddenberry wrote scenes specifically in engineering after Farpoint was initially established just to force them to have to make it. And they were not happy about it. They go deeper into the nebula. Um, we should note that Sydney LaForge, I really like her because she plays the Augie Willikers newbie role, but it's not done in a Mary Sue way. Like, you know how we really hated Uhura and strange new worlds. Cause it's like number one with the bullet Yas queen nonsense. And it was just got on her nerves. This is, she's like the plucky new person, but she's also like annoying. <laughs> In her in in that role, she's very capable, but she's not like all you know. She doesn't have like special wisdom. She's this like raw skill, and she she requires the 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 guidance and mentorship of those around her, like the way you would expect a young officer. But she also shows support, and I don't yeah. remember what point it is, but she comes by to visit Seven and Nine and like reaffirm, "Hey, you made the right choice." Uh, you know, calls the her Seven of Nine you. ends up being a plot point later. You know, yeah. I, you know, her portrayal there makes me wonder, is it hard to make, is it hard to make this character uh, 
good on screen or is it actually take effort to make annoying Mary Sue's that are abrasive to watch? Like, what's the formula there? Because this uh, LaForge's daughter here is great. I, I can't say a single negative thing about the portrayal, the way the character's written, the way the actress delivers it. Yeah, she's awesome. She name drops her dad a bunch. It doesn't get annoying. I don't understand it. Uh, she even points out like at a certain point, like, you know, my dad and I have the same thing in common. And it's like, what a insatiable lust for holograms. No, it's we have a hard time making friends, but the friends we do make, we treat like gold. The she even gets to die. I mean, that's that's good. It's, you know, she gets shot. <laughs> she gets to do all the fun stuff. So the episode three continues along with Riker trying to, to get them out of the situation. And he's being too cautious. And Picard is telling him he's being too cautious. The like, cautious part really felt weird for Riker. And I don't know if the illusion there was supposed to be that I've lost my son and I now am hyper aware of death and that I can bring the same level of grief to all of the parents of all of the people on this ship. Or I've just grown older and wiser in my age. But that again, Riker's a hard guy to write for. Riker always used to be Johnny Danger. Riker was always quick to leap into the dangerous away team missions. Riker was, you know, the best pilot around till Tom Paris and and willing to do the crazy shit. Like, do you feel where do you feel this caution's coming from? Do you feel that this is appropriate to the character's trajectory post Nemesis or I think it's situational. You know, he is as I mentioned, I think a little bit ago, he's everyone's in this mess because this was his fucking idea. Well, hold on. Let's 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 bookmark that for a second. Go to when Shelby showed up because Shelby gave him heat. And I think even back to that point, he had really started playing cautious hands because that was Shelby's criticism of it, wasn't it? That Yeah, you're playing too you're, safe. Like, why are you still the XO here? You need to be a captain by now. Get, so get I guess, out of yeah. that chair so I can be in it, you know? Well, that was you should have gone on, but I think their initial argument had flared up over she wanted to make a wild play and he was trying to pump the brakes on it. So I think even by that point of uh, best of both worlds, Riker had already seen significant character changes from early season Rikers. And I guess they kind of reinforce that, too, with Thomas Riker. That. William Riker saw traits in Thomas Riker that he had toned down a while ago. So yeah, that he had outgrown, you know, and it made sense that he'd outgrown them. Yeah, I guess seeing Riker at this stage in his career and his personal behavior, uh, him being overly cautious, especially in this situation, does track well. And that like Picard is trying to tell him like, no, you know, we're we've done this our whole lives. Yeah, it's risky, but you're going to have to create some sort of tactical advantage for yourself and blow this guy, this, this ship up. That's the way we would get out of this. And of course, you know, we get a whole episode of, you know, them trying to escape and using the portal gun and trying to slowly well, when wear they get them to down. the portal gun. That's a big deal, right? Cause they finally repair engines to the point where they can go to warp. They got to get out. Also, they've, uh, they're getting hit with these energy pulses. There's yeah. something in the nebula. There is a countdown timer running. They cannot be in here forever. Uh, and they go to make a run for it. And, 
right as they are about to get out the same portal device that was used to destroy the recruitment, recruitment outpost on yeah. Matlas or whatever. Off they go to try and hit the trajectory to punch it. And they go through this portal and they come out right in front of the Shrek. Shriek? Shrek? Shrek. Shrek. And they're like, what the fuck was that? Let's try to do this again. And they start getting juggled. And they realize we are not going to be able to outrun them. We're going to go back into the nebula. And uh, an odd thing is happening because this nebula is fucking up all the sensors. As nebulas are designed from the ground up to do. Yet somehow they're being tracked effectively through the nebula. And that's something shall call attention to from the operating table where I loved watching Bev get back into Being a doctor. Yeah. It was and that she said, like, I'm still a doctor. I still do medical stuff. <laughs> like I, I've not lost my touch on my art. You know, I haven't been inactive for 20 years and like has to like push back against the Trill CMO to say, mm-hmm. like, no, I can do this. Uh, and it's actually like it makes so much sense. Like Shaw is like in shock and trauma. They're trying to treat him, and he's like looks at Jack and just like gets out. Like, why are how are they tracking us? You know, like I'm giving you the directive. Go figure that out while I like lay here near death, please. I also enjoy the rest of the crew. Like giving Jack the side eye. Like we are all gonna fucking die here. And it's your, your fault. Your yeah. criminal ass. Like fuck you, dude. There's some so, connections between Riker and Jack to like the interplay. This Jack guy is not a bad actor. No, yeah, uh, he's good. And, you know, he he does well in the role. It's just again, he, he doesn't look anywhere near the ancient. He's just he's just all over the place in terms of like the actions he takes to the point where it gets a little weird. But uh, he's like, OK, if I've got to figure out why they're tracing us, uh, I guess I'll go find seven of nine. Who's <laughs> not doing anything right now and go to her and say, you know, you used to be a space pirate ish type of person. I used to know space pirates. Uh, there are a million ways for ships to be tracked that it's, you know, subtle, hard to, for the ship to know how it's that it's even happening. What would you pick if you were trying to track this ship? And through that logic, they figure out, oh, we need to go prevent this leak of this weird gas from occurring. They, you know, they do a standard one punch knockout of the security guard and mm-hmm. uh, off on that adventure they go. Meanwhile, Planet Raffi, uh, they're trying to track down some middleman that they had gotten as lead off of. Uh, yeah, we covered this, though. Like, this is the changeling. Well, I just wanted to point out yeah. that the changeling guy, it's the Renfield guy from the new Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, it is. So I'm like, oh, look at this guy. Movie star over here slumming. And he looks similar because he was all fucked up with his makeup. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the end. They figure out, all right, they're tracking us with this leak. We find out that there is, in fact, a shapeshifter on the Titan that is actively sabotaging efforts there. And that's going to be important because now this isn't squarely just Picard bringing problems into Shaw's life. Like there's some deeper shit going on here. Uh. Titan ends up with a pretty solid chance to finally get the drop on the Shriek. Picard's, you know, telling Riker, like, we got to do it, man. We got to go for the fucking kill. We can't run. You got to face these guys like. Do it. Now is the time they fly in. They hit them with the fucking photon torpedo spread. Portals. Photon torpedo goes in. (laughs) 
photon torpedo comes out behind Titan. Titan rocks itself with its own, <laughs> hit them with their own photons. And then we reach uh, one of my criticisms for all this, and it's just unnecessary levels of drama between main cast and old friends and just stuff that you never, ever saw in any of the TNG stuff. Just some very 2023, 2020 modern TV in here with just super high drama. Riker throws Picard off the bridge. There's a rift between them now. I mean, and, they patch it up like almost immediately, though. And Riker sure. admits he was wrong. Like, I actually think they do that. And then immediately it's nah. I was just pissed because I fucked it all up. You were right the whole time. We should have used the fact like, oh, Jack almost gets killed. We should point that out. Like the when the other changeling shows up and tries to prevent the leak from being stopped, nearly kills Jack and he goes down the sick bay and he sees him be revived. And it's, you know, it's definitely affected Picard. In a, in a particular emotional way and that in the context of that finally like Riker decides to like fight but it's too late and he's lost his tactical advantage and he just loses and he gets pissed and then immediately in the next episode in episode four he goes to Picard and goes you were right should have tried to find a way to get out of this by actually banging it out with her you know instead I didn't and we're gonna get killed for it and that's my fault. I apologize. Titan is super fucked. All the systems are offline. They don't have anywhere near the power they need. They got to start turning systems off. Uh, Titan is actively descending deeper into the center mass of this nebula. Uh, there's some sort of gravity well present. There is some big bad down there that they cannot hang around for. Uh, Starfleet protocol dictates that they should just chill out and wait for rescue, which will never happen because nobody knows they're there and they're outside of Federation space and shit is real bad. So the crew basically knows that they're going to die. They're dead in the water. Picard starts trying to reconnect with Jack, who he has been basically had a gun put to his head like your son just almost died. You do care about him. Now's a great time to patch this up. Picard goes down to the holodeck. Recreates ten forward uh, Guinan's bar invites you a nice bit of continuity. That huge continuity. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure you you noticed it as well as I did. The reason why the holodeck is working is it has a separate power source. Well, the fucking explanation of why the holodeck has a separate power source, like what a dark, depressing fucking thought that is. Like we specifically make this. So the power is incompatible with the rest of the ship. So when there is a no win scenario and people are dead to rights and they're going to die alone in space, they can make a Polynesian resort and have titties and beer and die in the void of space. Somewhat happy. A, a brilliant conceit to an existing piece of continuity. Like this was not an accident. This was on purpose. This is a, a little, emotional lifeboat for you to get into when you cannot escape the the darkness of space. It's morphine. You're, you're, you're terminal. And uh, this is like hospice space and hospice. Of course, everyone is veiling themselves of this opportunity, you know, like random crew members are showing up and eventually a newly uh, somewhat mended Shaw makes an appearance. And that's when he lays down, you know, he's, if he's going to die, He's going to not die not having confronted the man he hates the most in the universe, which is Jean-Luc Picard. And we find out why. Shaw is a survivor of Wolf 359. 
he tells a story, a harrowing story of that he and his whole crew, uh, everyone on his crew perished except, you know, the 10 people who got picked to be in a lifeboat, including him. And he, he's lived with survivor guilt for his whole adult life as a consequence of this. And just the lines of the lines of the whole show to, to a degree when he says, Do you know what your dad was doing on that day? He was on the Borg cube setting the world on fire. You know, like they, they, you know what they call him? They call him Lucutus of Borg. The only Borg so deadly he has a goddamn name. Like, brilliant. Just a brilliant way to describe like how awful Lucutus was for Starfleet. Like, and they touch on that in DS9, right? They do. And unfortunately, they don't do it very much. It's really just in the premiere. In the premiere, Cisco survives Wolf 359 as well, and he doesn't like Picard because of it. And then at the end of it, like, that's the only time they ever meet in the whole show, right? And this is over. Um, this is like four episodes. It's been building this, like, why is this guy so aggro against Picard? Well, killed all of his friends, and he's been living with the guilt that he survived it for his entire life. And uh, this is this dude is here. He's his his worst enemy. The person that's caused him the most pain is present before him, and they're all gonna die. So he's gonna go tell that motherfucker exactly how he feels about him before the chance is lost. And it's fair too. You know, nobody would be in that situation again if it wasn't for Picard coming along. So like, yeah. this is the second time he's been fucked by this guy. Uh, the bad guy, whatever the evil captain is, Vatic. <clears throat> intimates that she's got some pretty sensitive Federation information that she's aware of. She's got Shaw's psych profile. She even kind of fingers the fact something's wrong with this guy. Um, so yeah, this, this is a really good scene. Uh, it takes all the disdain you would have for Shaw as a viewer and uh, wipes it. Because now you see, okay, this this is what's up with this dude. Yeah, he doesn't like Seven of Nine because she's bored. Which, you know? again, then why would he pick her for the fucking... That, that's the one thing that doesn't add up. And he'll say, you know, I underestimated this. But, like, if you if you really don't like Borg, why would you make Borg your fucking XO? Because you're angry and you want to oppress them. <laughs> um, The... It's not even an elephant in the room, like... I don't know what point I stopped and really paid attention. There's profanity. Yeah, it's it's the 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 f bomb that he shares when he's talking about Jack Crusher with the son. Yeah, but like, whereas season one is the sheer fucking hubris, like it stood out so bad. It doesn't feel non twenty fourth century. It works. It flows. It's woven into the dialogue as supplemental. It is not the focus of the dialogue. And they put a fair amount of um, profanity into these episodes. And you don't notice. I, I, feel, I feel like the F-bombs are out of place because that's crass language. But like Shaw calling himself a dipshit from Chicago makes a ton of sense. Like that works for me really well, but like Jean-Luc Picard should not be using, should not be using potty language. When <laughs> did too, he say, he says 10 fucking hours. No, I like that. Oh, you did. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of conversations about, you know, what's, what's the worst thing you've ever been in? And it's like, I ask a man that like he had how many 
seasons or episodes were there? 26 times seven plus however many movies. Like every day of work was the worst fucking day of work. I got stuck in an elevator with kids. What was the what's the worst thing that ever happened? Well, I mean, I was held a prisoner of war for like fucking two months and tortured ad nauseum. <laughs> and also Naked. I was in a terrible lift with kids and I had to convince them to save themselves. <laughs> yeah, I was kidnapped by the fucking Borg and, you know. That's about to come up, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really liked Picard's reaction to the anger that Shaw had for him. Yeah. That like, yeah, I'm not over that either. You know, we, we, we were all on the same page that that was the absolute worst. And I am a bad person, whether I was complicit in that or not. This um, is also the episode that is framed by the Picard telling stories to the Starfleet youngsters, which like you want to talk about the opposite of him being emasculated. This is. Oh, hero Jean-Luc Picard, will you please tell us stories of how fucking awesome you are? I know you want to eat your sirloin steak, but please, man, we're here. And like, that's cool framing, too, because he's telling all these stories and this hero worship. And as we'll later find out, you know, there's been this. Beverly say, listen, I told Jack once he was old enough where to find you and I wanted him to go out and find you. And he did not seek you out. Like, I'm not going to put a gun to his head to make him do it. We'll find out later by the end that his son was actually there for that little bit of hero worship said, Hey, you know, you ever wish you had family and Picard makes a comment like Starfleet's always been the family that I, you know, took care of my family needs. And like Jack was going to reach out to him and kind of got rebuffed. And I think that's some real good character building for Jack. Why there's this Starfleet resentment and this problem with authority and this other stuff. So we're just master strokes there on that character. Uh, The pulses from the nebula getting worse and worse. I absolutely love that it's Beverly Crusher that notices and and that, you know. I don't think Beverly really got the recognition for the science, the scientist she was, particularly because this is a biological circumstance, right? Like it makes sense that it was her as good as it felt watching Riker get up there and belt some orders out and Picard put his foot down. It felt good for Bev to be like. I'm fucking great at my job, by the way. I worked on the flagship and I know there's space babies. And her fucking scene in explaining, like we didn't go into it, but like her justification to Picard for why I hid, why you had a son, like why I decided that this was not something to involve you in was awesome because it's like hard to, it's really hard to build a scene where a character that's made a choice that seems so obviously objectionable and victimizing of another can be justified. Like, Hard to see a world where Beverly Crusher could be right for not telling Jean-Luc Picard that she had a son with him. Yet, by the end of that conversation, you totally see her point. Like, hey, I was going to tell you, and then, like, Romulans tried to kill you. And then I was going to tell you, and then you got kidnapped for five days. And then I was going to tell you, and then they tried to bomb you. And that's when I decided I was never going to be able to fucking tell you. Your life is a TV show. It is ridiculous. (laughs) Every... Twice a pay period, you you are in periling uh, hells, and you still choose to be there. I'm not going to create a situation where you have to choose this life you love so much you're willing to endure being terrorized every 48 hours uh, or going off and being a father. And, you know, his, uh, his Picard's... Because 
he, he plays the scene great too, right? He says, how could I have ever known what my answer would have been? Cause you never gave me the opportunity to even know, right? Like I, you don't know. I don't know. I have no idea if 20 years ago you came to me and said, Jean-Luc, I'm pregnant. You're going to have a child. I don't think this works if you don't quit, that I might not quit and decide to do that. I never got a chance to know what my answer was would have been. The only line that's missing there would have been her saying, and I couldn't be the one to take you off the chessboard. Too many times I've seen you were the only person that was able to do what you're doing. And the universe needs you. The the Titan situation continues to develop as Seven talks to Shaw and Riker. First to Riker to say, we got a fucking changeling problem. What, like, There's one on board somewhere. It used to be the transporter chief. I found his body half decayed, Milan suitor style in a closet. Hmm. Uh, so we got to fucking find him. And, and Riker's like, hey, okay, I'm putting you on the mission. I'm reinstating you, but you know, sniff this thing out. And she eventually goes to Shaw to say, like, listen, I need to talk to someone who knows what the fuck is going on to be able to figure this out. And you get a little bit of interplay between the two of them where ultimately Shaw's explaining what changelings are to her and says, like, eventually they have to, like, get into a bucket to, like, could have skipped the weed joke. Oh, the finer cannabis. You mean cannabis? I love it was that fine. Shaw at first is like, fuck you, get out of here. I don't care. We're very clearly all going to die. And mm-hmm. I don't give a shit about what you have to say. And then she like drops enough shit on me. He's like, fuck. <laughs> I am captain, I guess. <laughs> like I should, should get fucking chain link changelings on my ship. Not like this. <laughs> like okay, this you can stay. We can talk for a couple minutes. So she goes on the hunt for this thing to find his bucket and all this other stuff. So that's, that's happening in the background. And after Crusher comes to Picard and Jack with like, no, there's a way around this. And they go to Riker to say, listen, I know you think we're fucked. I know you think we're just going down, but there's there. We've figured out this whole pulses, electric pulses, waves. We could, we can charge the warp core. We can basically overcharge the batteries on the ship. By opening up our nacelle covers and like ex- and riding the wave surfer style to get the fuck out of here and and beat this thing. And Riker is reinvigorated by this this hope. You know, he's been overwhelmed by his nihilism and he, he, he seizes on this on this chance. He says space babies and they're like space babies. And she's like, we've seen stuff like this before where there's just big events out in space. Far point. And I'm like. Great time to fucking tap that ridiculous episode. Good. There's a thing going. We figured it out. We can use uh, environmental hazards to our advantage. Blah, blah, blah. Riker's dragging his feet. And I got this. This. Uh, this crystallized a lot of stuff for me. And it was tapping into what is the core concept of this show. Mm-hmm. So Riker's showing doubt like there's a. <laughs> we, we might be able to survive for a little bit then we'll die or we can do what you want to do and we will for sure die. There's such a narrow opportunity to survive this. And I don't know if it's Beverly or if it's Picard that lays it out, but it's like, you know, if there's anybody that can pull it off, it's us. You know, we were a flagship crew. Let's do 
what we spent in our entire lives learning to be great at. And it's pulling out a win where there should be no opportunity for it all. It was Beverly who said that. And it's like, that's what the show was, you know, was seven yeah. seasons of them at beating everything at all odds. Like at some point they have to become self-aware. Like we've cheated death so many fucking times. Like We're we have become great at it. Yeah. And this is just another opportunity. We got to knock the rust off. Uh, we got to juice up the people around us because they're not ready to fucking do the zany kind of shit that we used to pull on a fucking weekly basis. We are the best who ever did this. If anyone's going to make it as us, let's just fucking do it. And that's what gets to Riker. It's what works. Like, you know what? We are the fucking best who's ever done this. Let's go. He gets the twinkle in his eye. And that's, that's the right time to get the twinkle of like, oh, yeah, we're fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't have data here to fucking do crazy math for us anymore uh, in LaForge or, you know, Q in our back pocket. I guess he died season two. But yeah, fuck it. Or let's go down trying. They launch the plan. They first have to navigate a asteroid field. Which Picard navigates with Jack's help in giving directions to Sydney LaForge about how to use the thrusters to, like, get him down. It's very reminiscent of Booby Trap. You know, and that's like, exactly what I was thinking, too. Yeah. And they navigate that. They are going to get into the wave. You know, they dump all of their life support energy into the engine so they can make it work. The critical point in all of this, though, as you kind of mentioned, was you need to open up the exterior casings of the oh, yeah. to expose the engines. And because of the refit, it's not an automated process. So you need the one guy out there who is able to do it. And that's also the guy who hates you the most. That's going to be Shaw. So you're going to have to build that bridge and say, here's our zany fucking plan. We all just did a bunch <laughs> of drugs. We just took our Federation antidepressants. So we believe we can do this now. But hey, you cynical guy, you also are on painkillers because you broke all your ribs and knocked your fucking teeth out. But you, I need you to go crawl into a fucking tight space and uh, pop these covers so we can soak up the juices and go. Also, by the way, you're going to be super exposed and what you're doing is really important. So you might have like a changeling assassin come visit you. So FYI do love the, like he just shows up and goes, I know you don't want to talk to me, but uh, I'm going to need you. The dipshit from Chicago. I need you. This is the way it is. And he's like, all right. <laughs> like the way he just accepts, like you're acknowledging what I said to you, right? You're acknowledging. I told you, you were a monstrous piece of shit. And you're saying, I'm still here because you're the man who can save the day. And he's like, give me five minutes. I'll see you down there. <laughs> you know, like, I'm a Starfleet captain. I am not immune to the need to go do rad space shit. Let's go, you know? And also, too, I think there's a begrudging admission, you know, that these guys are the best of the best. He wasn't happy to see him on the ship. He still gave Riker command. He could have put Hanson in there. He could have put the lieutenant commander, whoever in there. Yeah. He knows these guys are the best of the best. And this is what he signed up for is, is this kind of shit specifically. And it's happening. And he has to respect the fact that. You know, th th these guys are, are doing the thing that he's there to do. So it goes down with seven of nine to, to do the <clears throat> covers. Like you said, a changeling assassin comes down that looks like Sydney LaForge. Seven sniffs it out by getting her as foreshadowed to give up a to do something incorrect. 
uh, by calling her Commander Hansen instead of calling her Commander Seven and uh, blast her the chest. <laughs> Correct answer. You do not just kill Jordy LaForge's daughter. You kill a changeling. That's that's good. And uh, sure enough, they get the things open and they start riding the wave. And everything's coming back online. Picard's like giving direction on navigation, like do this, stay in it. All the crew members are figuring out, oh, this is what we got to do. You see the, you see them buy into what the, their leaders are telling them, you know, when they perform. When they get ready to, to do the gauntlet run here and uh, Picard surrenders the captain chair to Picard. I'm sorry. Riker surrenders to the captain's chair to Picard because, you know, this is his show at that point. Stuart brings back real Picard. Yeah. To the point where, like, I got a little emotional watching, like, him get up there and just start belting out orders to a degree that none of these captains in uh, Picard seasons one or three have done to this point where it's like, like, you know, I, you know, I play uh, Artemis, right? Mm-hmm. And some of these other, like, bridge commanders, like, there's letting the crew do their thing and then there's getting in there and be like, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. And that's fucking textbook Picard, like just getting in there and it's my show now. And despite what you might have heard in season one, uh, I am the fucking captain. <laughs> and I'm good at this. Mm-hmm. I'm great at it. And everybody's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, is this who <laughs> is this, is this what being commanded feels like? Because I like this. <laughs> yes. Yes, captain, my captain. And in in what can only be called the true redemptive moment of Captain Riker's brief uh, um, command of, of the Titan, when the Shrike appears in front of them one more time, he's not fucking around. He's not being defensive. He's learned his lesson. And he goes, our tractor be working? Yeah. Grab that rock and throw it at him. <laughs> Get him. So, yeah, they cut the thing they fly over it and they throw an asteroid into the shrike and bev goes will did you just throw an because she was knocked out the first time something got thrown so this is all new yeah. to her yeah will did you just throw an asteroid at that ship you goddamn right i did and i was like fuck yes <laughs> fuck yes It's just like, you know what? Absurd. Fuck these guys. Absurd. <laughs> and that was that was perfect. It was. That was fucking perfect. I love that. I love the disbelief on Beverly. Even Will doesn't believe it happened. It did. They don't circle back around and kill him because, you know, they're good guys and the plot must go on or whatever. But And they find out, of course, in a beautiful little a TNG to the T moment. Mm-hmm. That this was, in fact, a giant space baby that bore. It was apparently a space birthing sack of a bunch of space, adorable space squids. And they're they're floating around now. Like fireworks. Beautiful. And they're looking at them. And, of course, even Beverly just says it. Seek out new life. Right. And everyone's having that magical moment. And it's perfect. And Will's like, it's time for us to boldly get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Like, Sydney, why don't we uh, go? (laughs) Like now, <laughs> we, we, we've had a day mm-hmm. and they warp out and uh, that, you know, the, the episode ends with a little bit of tease, of course, that, you know, we're we haven't really started to dig into the plot. You know, we've really just spent this time with the characters so that you can get a sense of some of the stakes, but not all of them. Something's the teleporter with- terrorist weapon is just a diversion from whatever the real 
uh, dangerous that was stolen from Daystrom. And Jack is somehow involved. They're, He's they're having hallucinations. Yeah. There's a red door. There's vines growing. And then that's the end of the episode. So, as you said, Peter, you said it is good, but not great. Um, I think it becomes great in Season episode four. Episode, episode four, four was great. Yeah. It builds into that, right? Like Coincident- they- Coincidentally, episode four has the least amount of Raffi. So go figure. <laughs> yeah. The Raffi level goes down after the first four episodes quite precipitously. Oh, she broke up with seven of nine. I mean, that was just like sad and an off moment and doesn't really matter in the whole season. But um, the Raffi goes down. Obviously, the plots converge. We get more and more of the crew together, as you would expect. There is uh, some stuff we didn't touch on with the changeling captain cutting off her hand to communicate with the whatever organization she's a part of. Uh, that they're the ones pressing saying Jack Crusher is paramount. I don't care if you die. I don't care if your ship dies or your whole crew dies. You get this fucking done. And there's an acceptance to that. So there are very high stakes here on this Jack Crusher character. Are you excited to watch the next three episodes? Yeah. So here's what happened. We made the decision to watch this. I watched episode one with my wife who... Uh, was very cautious about getting back in bed with Picard again for very good reason. She bailed on Picard season one early. <clears throat> and then my kids have been monsters and not going to bed properly. So getting them just to lay down and give us TV times rough. We were supposed to watch an episode the next day. I think I watched that first one Monday, maybe. Mm-hmm. She fell asleep trying to get them to lay down. And I was like, well, I, I need to watch. This isn't leisure watching. like. I have to watch this. This is podcast business. <laughs> and then I watched episode two, three and four, and I went to bed at like two o'clock in the morning. So uh, I'm I'm fucking ready for more of these. And it's been rough not watching any. I mean, again, four is a good place to stop, but I'm certainly looking forward to getting deeper in here. Um, it's not revolutionary. It's not the greatest thing ever. You know, I just got off a of severance, which was super good. So like my I'm not super starved for great stuff but they're hitting the fucking notes they're they're using the nostalgia correctly they're bringing out enough fucking um easter eggs that it's uh like again the rachel garrett thing was a fucking deep cut i love that like they're doing it right it's not the focus it's not a crutch they're leaning on um but it's showing me there's some high competency and just real quick going through these uh Episode one was written by Next Generation. That was uh, Terry Metalis written by or directed by Doug Aronofsky, who's just a bunch of Discovery credits. And then uh, Disengage was Chris Monfrit and Sean Trada by Darren Aronofsky, Douglas Aronofsky. Interesting to me that Metalis isn't the writing credit on all of these for as well put together as these all were. Uh, and then you get into season or episode three and four, Jane Mags, Cindy Apple, directed by Frakes. Yep. Got to have him do at least one. 
Well, they had him do two because the fourth one was Terry Metalis and Sean Trader and, and Frakes again there. So uh, good to see Frakes being able to come in strong on these. And First, also like perform and direct. A lot of the episodes he directed of TNG, he would write himself. He would put himself out. Yes. And in this, like he's the focus really of episodes three and four. I want to say like his captain. He's prominent. Titan. Yeah. And you know, his he has probably, you know, he has a lot of big dramatic moments. It's got to be hard. Because he said, you know, he was hesitant to do it because he had just never not acted for the last decade. <laughs> like he just wasn't he wasn't in front of the camera. He was behind the camera. And she had some warm ups there, like in it for however silly and brief it was doing the voiceover work for lower decks. Like, I think there's enough there to like, maybe I do miss this a little bit. And, the, you know, oh, it was a little tell. bit. Of a he wouldn't be trying as hard as he was if he didn't miss it, you know? No. <laughs> and then. um there is a good scene there where he does call Deanna because he was going to write her like a I'm dead and here's my postmortem thing, which she ultimately doesn't and calls her when he gets out. And it's a good Star Trek moment, too. And this is something they always kind of do when there's a death is that like. Basically, it's is there a God, right? Mm-hmm. We're out here going to the far edges of the galaxy. Is there an afterlife? This thing I care the most about my dead child is there anything out there for them or is this just a shallow existence that's over as, as, as easily as it appears. And, you know, he's in this real dark place and then getting the band back together, cheating death, and then getting to see baby squid fireworks, like rekindling his passion for life and his hope and his curiosity and all of his Starfleet feelings of, you know, exploring the unknown and willing to believe in this and that like Troy does a nice job selling uh, the change she's seeing and, Mm -hmm. and uh, putting them over. Yeah. It kind of completes his emotional arc, you know, where he's come to realize that the uh, galaxy and existence is grander than, you know, his nihilism and that he's, he's found life and he's embracing, you know, this new found, emergence from his depression it's yes just, it's it's a nice end to the emotional arc that he was on for the first four episodes and i'm glad you're excited man like it gets even better than it's been and uh, so if you thought this was good and you thought four episode four was great i'm excited to get your take as we as we mow through the rest of this so two and a half hours later yeah we are we're tapping out we hope you guys enjoyed this god you better i'm gonna be editing this and I'm going to like my hair is going to turn white, but when we mm. get there, we're going to get there. And, uh, I want to put a timetable on exactly when we're going to finish this. I assume we're going to, we're going to move at pace depending on, on schedules. Uh, but you can count on us getting through this at a, at a, with considerable effort out to everybody. Cause frankly, I've enjoyed talking about it and I'm excited to talk more about These it. These are the conversations I wanted to have about Picard. Yeah. This is why I got excited. To, this is why we stopped <clears throat> doing Voyager and went all in on Picard because this is the excitement and the enjoyment that we should have been able to enjoy instead of that fucking train wreck. That was just mean spirited, uh, humor. You know, this is genuine fandom. This is, uh, respect to the source material and the fans. This is what we signed up for. And I'm happy that we're finally getting a fucking taste of it. Agreed. Agreed, sir. All right, everybody. Thanks for enjoying this episode and we'll see you next time.